0: Let's take it to the edge. Let's get completed Let's talk about the night perspective Let's get sharp Let's get
1: a little
2: Hey guys, I'm Dan Eastland with Dogwood Custom Knives, and I'm here with my co-host, Kyle Daly of KH Knives, and welcome to episode number 013 of the Knife Perspective. This is the H. Clay Alders Uncovered. Hey Kyle, how are you doing tonight?
0: I'm doing pretty good. It's uh, been a been a long week, but making it through it, taking it one day at a time. Attaboy. boy. I'm all jacked up on
2: cough syrup and coffee, so I've got no freaking clue what's going to come out of my mouth.
0: <laughs> it's okay. I'll try to try to tame you back in the edit.
2: Yeah, you know it's going to take a lot of work for me to not look bad tonight.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, we do our best to make you look good, though. Uh,
2: that's a that's a very high bar to set. If if you could just not, if you could go for just not an idiot, I I, I think we can call that
0: a successor tonight. All righty, cool. So we uh, – Who's our premier sponsor for tonight? We got uh, Jess Hoffman of J. Hoffman Knives slash J. Hoffman Hardwoods. Do a, do us a favor and go check him out on Instagram, J. Hoffman Knives, for all of his awesome knives. He's getting ready to go on hey, a uh, –
2: Hey, don't do us a favor. Do yourself a favor and go check him out.
0: Yeah. He's getting ready to do a show at the beginning of October. I forget what the name of it is at the off the top of my head. But he also has some awesome handle material had some big blocks of cherry burl that uh were were pretty awesome looking that I'm, I'm thinking hard about.
2: You had his wood in your hands recently, didn't yeah.
0: you? Yeah. Um speaking of said knife, I just got a text from uh from him. He gave it to his dad. His dad loved it and said it was awesome. Let me read the exact text. It says your knife has already drawn blood on its first unofficial use. <laughs> Hey, so
2: if it until it bites you, it's not really yours. <laughs> if it hasn't drawn your blood,
0: it's not yours. Yeah. Knife. So it was pretty pretty funny when I read that one. So but yeah. Yeah, check uh So if you want stabilized Yeah, wood. if you want stabilized wood or some awesome knives, uh check out Jess Hoffman of uh Jay Hoffman Knives, Jay Hoffman Hardwoods. And uh you can check out uh Dan and I's knives at Old Town Cutlery. They uh, have both our both our knives, and you can find Dan's knives also at Knife Center. And unlike uh, Todd in the last episode, we we don't have a million uh, dealers that carry all of our knives.
2: Yeah, I, I, I'm not a sellout. Well, all right, I'm totally a sellout, but I'm just selling out to a couple of people. I'm not a like Todd, and it's just going to sell myself to anyone. <laughs> uh,
0: I don't know if I call call Todd that, but he's uh, he's definitely got got his knives around.
2: Oh while I'm three states away I'll call him anything I want.
0: <laughs> just just wait till he randomly shows up at uh, Knifetoberfest.
2: <sighs> All right. So what I meant to say was
0: uh,
2: Speaking of Knifetoberfest, by the time you hear this episode Knifetoberfest will have expired. So you'll have missed your chance to come meet me. But in the next episode, we're going to recap everything that happened that hasn't happened yet but will have happened by the time you hear this podcast.
0: Yeah, it'll be pretty cool. Um, there's a lot of cool uh, guilds and clubs that are going to be there, the Georgia Custom Knife Makers Guild, the Flint River Knife Club, the Chattahoochee Cutlery Club, and the Georgia Bushcraft group.
2: And the Georgia Bushcraft guys are new this year. Um, I've done some of their events down near uh, Athens and they are good people.
0: Yeah, I think they had a big get together or something. I was seeing a bunch of things on Instagram the other day.
2: They did. They had a kind of a combination of a vendors and trading blanket event last weekend, which was a great opportunity for some of the the up and coming makers to to let their their wares be seen. Um, so it wasn't one of their official campouts, but it was a, a gathering and a chance to to swap and trade.
0: Yeah, it's very cool, like a
2: like an old rendezvous, even.
0: And Then I also saw there was uh, Tatrock the Hammerin, I believe that happened recently. Uh yeah, Tatrock or Tatrock? Yeah, that's that's in your neck of the woods. It is, and that is
2: a great gathering you know it's a hammer in so it's more smith than it is stock removal but especially early on i've had to miss the last couple now that my boys play football okay Uh, but it is a great opportunity to not only meet people but a phenomenal opportunity for education to really get some hands-on and you know here's how to grip the hammer it seems counterintuitive, but you want to push the steel in this direction. So when you come back this direction, you'll get the, the shape you want. Uh, it's really phenomenal, not just for makers to go learn some of the, the basics, but for enthusiasts to just go see what it takes to make a knife.
0: Yeah, it's pretty cool. They, there were a bunch of videos on Instagram that I was seeing posted around. And it's
2: phenomenal camping. I mean, was, uh, the state park is stunningly beautiful.
0: It looks like there was like a shelter house or something there. They had a whole bunch of stuff. That's not some – that's a state park, not a, not somebody's farm or something.
2: The last time I was there, it was a, a huge open barn and then that was either part of the park or it was immediately adjacent to the park. So we could camp in the state park mm-hmm. and then it was a, a big open, almost like a pole barn that they had – I think the last time I was there, they had 15 or 20 forges set up. Wow. And probably 40 makers um, answering questions and doing hands on.
0: If you can't learn something with that many people around, you're doing something wrong. Yeah. Even I learned something. <laughs> All righty. You want to in- introduce our, our special guest for the the evening?
2: I originally met Clay. Drunken and stumbling in the moonlight on, uh, half moon ridge at a Becker gathering. And when we sobered up the next morning, it turns out we still thought each other were kind of cool guys. At the time he was with a website, we're going to get into that with later, but, uh, was also a fishing guide and I have always wanted to learn to fly fish. And he was kind enough to invite my wife and I out. Uh, he was a guide in the Smoky Mountains. So was a fishing guide, ran a knife-specific website, a father, and pretty much all-around wilderness bum. Um, had a great time going out and fishing with him. Was a little disturbed at how much work it takes to outsmart something with the brain the size of a pea, but he managed to do it. <laughs>
1: Nice. You got that line from me.
2: Yes, yes I did. <laughs> and see how I just made it my own, and since I said it first, that's all people are gonna remember.
1: <laughs> hey, you can have it. <laughs> I had a blast fishing with you and Beth, honestly. That was a that was a fun day.
2: You know, you started a little bit of an expensive addition. Addi- oh! Let me try that again. You started a little bit of an expensive addiction for Beth. Um it turns out she much prefers the the interactive casting a fly to sitting and watching a bobber.
1: I understand completely. Yeah. I
2: don't because fly fishing takes two hands and I don't have a third one for my bottle.
1: I've never actually
0: fly fished, but I'm always I'd always I'm always worried that I would smack myself in the
1: face with the the fly. It's not too bad. I've uh I think I only had about 3 clients ever hook themselves in about 20 years and about 6 of them hook me. So yeah. <laughs> That's, uh, it, it comes with the job. That's why you wear sunglasses. Nice. Falling in love is part of being a guide. You got to love it. It's it's teaching and fishing rolled into one. So what's not to love? Hopefully those were uh, bar- barbless hooks on those flies. To... Actually, funny story. I, I assume some of your uh, listeners are fly fishermen, so they will know Bob Clouser and a Clouser minnow. Well, I had the opportunity to meet Bob a couple years back at Trout Fest in Townsend, Tennessee. And I went up to him and told him that I think of him every time I pinch a barb down on a on any fly because it was a size two clouser minnow that ended up in the back of my neck that convinced me that pinching down the barb was a good idea. Nice.
2: So so you hadn't learned the whole push down on it and pull it out thing? Oh, you pull it through and cut it off. Uh, whew, that, that, <laughs> that, that's, that's manly.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: Let's splash some bourbon on it and watch this.
1: Yeah, honestly, you feed it the rest of the way through, cut the cut the end of it off, and back it out. If you try to back it out with a barb, you're going to tear the snot out of yourself.
2: You know, I've, I've heard about the technique where you wrap a little piece of uh, of line around the, the apex of the hook, and you push down to clear the barb, and then you pull on the line to clear it.
0: That sounds risky.
2: Because my calculation has always been if it's less than 50% of the way through, try that. If it's more than 50% of the way through, just push it on through and cut it off.
1: I've done it. You can do it with smaller flies down to about a size, oh, I'd say, 10, 8. Anything bigger than that, you're just ripping a huge chunk out on the way out. Um, I don't know. There's a reason they have barbs. There's a reason you pinch them down. Yeah, knives in the news. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. All
2: right. So if you all have been listening to the podcast, you know about some of the Bullshittery around what's going on in England
0: Yeah, it's getting pretty crazy over there With
2: some of the knife laws So they're now coming out With a stab proof Kitchen knife, which my first Observation on that is I looked at the knife And yeah It's stab proof, and it's also Utterly freaking useless As a kitchen knife, like they changed The dynamics where It's fine if you're going to hold it like An ice pick and stab somebody With it but to do anything other than that, the shape is all wrong. You couldn't pinch cut that and use it as a proper chef's knife. So congratulations, guys. You took a perfectly useful tool and turned it into s- great. You made a knife that can't stab. Hey, can it slash? Is it going to be codename useless freaking rod? <laughs> hey, Europe, if you're ever wondering why you're chosen last, this is why we all think you're a bunch of tools, and that's all I got to say about that.
0: Direct, direct your comments to Dan at <laughs> Talk a, with Customer. No, no, no,
2: no. <laughs> we we've established other thing, uh, anything other than you're freaking amazing. <laughs> go to Kyle at Podcast. <laughs> right, on, send your hate mail to Dan at Podcast
0: yeah so the they have a picture of it up on the the link that'll be in the show notes and it looks like a beluga whale like with a big
1: like humped forehead yeah <laughs> it's just
0: a really long it's almost like a like a boning knife carving knife, but just yes. with the the huge point all rounded off so you can't they
2: took a boning knife, which is a crappy kitchen knife or chef's knife that's why it's a boning knife, and then rounded the tip off, so great now it's useless for everything except slashing people,
0: yeah so Well, let's uh, let's mosey on
1: past that one. No, 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 no. The rest
2: of of y'all need to sound off and get some hate mail too.
1: Oh, uh, just the fact that I – do they not have sidewalks? Like how hard is it to take it and just kind of file off the back end of it and make it pointy again? Or while you're at it, just make a shiv.
2: No, that's illegal.
1: Oh, hey, that's a great idea. Why did
2: I think of this? Hey, England, how about you make stabbing people illegal? And then no one will do it.
0: Yeah. They think I think they already did.
2: That's what it was. They forgot to make killing people illegal. So if you would just go ahead and make murder illegal, you could solve this problem. Don't
0: <laughs> don't mind me. That's the cough
2: syrup talking.
0: <laughs> yeah. So so much for not talking a whole bunch of politics on the podcast. But no, no, uh
2: that's not politics. That's England. That uh that's not our politics. Who cares? Yeah.
0: <laughs> it doesn't count at all. So yeah, or uh our interview today is with Clay Alders. He's been uh, been doing some pretty interesting things. I believe I met you for the first time at Blade Show two years ago, and actually got to talk with you for more for more than like fifteen twenty minutes uh, last year. I believe so. Uh, you were you were pretty much on the move uh, when I met you two years ago, but
2: I have never seen him stand still for more than fifteen or twenty minutes.
0: Yeah, he was trying to make all this round.
1: I was a firefighter in college. And my uh, fire chief, I finally introduced my wife to him years later, and the first thing he said is, have you gotten him to stand still yet? He used to uh, keep a piece of chalk in his fire gear, and when we were standing around talking after a run, he would draw a circle on the firehouse floor, and I had to stand in it. (laughs) That's awesome. There's a joke. I forget who mentioned it for the first time, but they say that if uh, Joe Flowers and I spend too much time in close proximity – we're going to synchronize our vibrations oh, good and no. rip a hole in the fabric of space and time.
0: <laughs> uh,
2: it's too probable. We can't allow that. It's
1: like crossing the streams.
2: Yeah. You know, the, the dark side of me just imagined, what if I put you and Joe together with a bag of ex- chocolate-covered espresso beans? <laughs> I mean, just, I know just because I can doesn't mean I should, but it would be fascinating. <laughs> Lives would be lost. I think
0: you
1: all could speak in colors uh, so clay uh where did where did you grow up at? I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, east Side, spent my time running around fishing on my uncle's pond and basically spending as much time in the woods out of town as I could, and uh went through scouts and went off to college and ended up doing some archaeology field work in kenya and in Venezuela. Came back, was working.
2: Uh, I was just hanging out in Kenya and Venezuela. No big deal yeah. there.
1: Nothing to see. Wow! So you went to Kenya after you, after high school, or I went to well, I went to Kenyon College, K O N Y O N, and then went to Kenya after I graduated. Went and played in the dirt and uh, dug up a bunch of uh, two million year old fossil cut marked bone, and uh, it was kind of fun. We made stone tools, butchered a bunch of goats, created a couple of vegetarians that night. Some of the folks weren't too happy meeting the meat. What kind of fossils were you digging up? The bones and stuff over there? Well, um well, this is in the Rift Valley in Kenya up at uh, Fora, where the leakies did a lot of their work and um we've digging up hillsides with uh cut marked fossil like fossil cut marks where you can tell that they were clearly butchery so the obvious evidence of butchery going on two million years ago it actually dates back farther than that but what we were digging up so two million probably Homo erectus um, is is the best uh, bet I know Dan is going like just giggling his brains out over that one but um uh, <laughs> but I've gotten to I guess the bottom line between uh, I came back uh, after grad school um, was getting ready to apply to PhD programs my advisor. Said, don't talk about how much you want to teach. Talk about your research goals and grant proposals and funding and that sort of thing. And I said, well, what if I want to teach? And she said, well, go teach high school biology. That's not what this is about. I said, okay, lady, and go side yourself. And I took my new wife, and we moved out to Idaho, and I started guiding on the Snake River and building drift boats for hide Boats.
2: God knows we don't need any PhDs teaching around here.
1: But guiding is teaching and fishing rolled into one. And – um two of my favorite That's things. two
2: of your three favorite. Things.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I haven't I haven't done much I did a bunch of fishing when I was younger but never uh haven't really done anything since I graduated high school once I got into college and started engineering and stuff we haven't really really done much of anything. My aunt and uncle and cousins they live in Ashtabula which is like almost right at the Pennsylvania border of
1: Ohio. I, that's Steelhead Alley. I know it well. I was on camp staff for a scout reservation in Rock Creek, which is just down Route 45, about half an hour south of Ashtabula.
0: Yeah, so we did a lot of fishing on Lake Erie, and the first fish I ever caught was a 27-inch rainbow trout on Lake Erie, so that kind of
1: <laughs> kind of set the bar pretty high. Really, yeah. <laughs> rainbow on Lake Erie, yeah. Well, I guess maybe a steelhead, probably actually, is what it was. It was a, um, it was a
0: rainbow. We were trolling for walleye and just random, okay. randomly caught a big one. I got a had a picture oh, of it steelhead somewhere. Steelhead,
1: our our rainbow trout. Okay. They uh, what they do is they call it steelhead alley. It's notably native to the Pacific Northwest, and um, what they do, they're like salmon that. They imprint on a river where they're born, and then they go out to the sea, and then they swim back up and spawn. And they figured out we've got the same kind of conditions on the Lake Erie tributaries. And so from just inside of the Ohio border from Detroit all the way through Buffalo, New York, they call it Steelhead Alley, and they stock a couple million fingerlings a year into those tributaries of Lake Erie. They fall back into the lake for a couple of years, get big. And then they run up the rivers to try to spawn. Hmm. Um, they don't successfully, the water gets too warm in the spring, but the fish um, behave no differently than the ones out west. I mean, it's it's the same sort of environment for them in general. Huh, that's pretty crazy.
2: Wow, we have really fast forwarded from where did you grow up to, hey, tell us about the whole rest of your life. <laughs> but we skipped, what was your first knife?
1: Oh, my first knife night- was probably the my mom for a Indian guides outing gave me or loaned me her uh, I think it was like a Camillus Girl Scout one of those green ones, which I ended up losing my first time going camping with Indian guides. I actually just picked one up last year at the Pigeon Forge knife show, right vintage and right patina, and uh, gave it to her for Christmas. So I I, I righted that first missed. That's pretty cool. Um, so gave her one of those. Probably after that, my first real knife was a uh, for me was probably a Swiss Army Tinker. Before I went to a scout camp for the first time, from there I carried a Spyderco Endura all the way through high school. Swapped it out in college for a Spyderco Rescue because I was on the fire department on a volunteer department in Knox County, Ohio. Then started working at a local REI type place after college, and start and that's where I started getting into bench maids and some of the other. Some of the other brands that were really new on the scene in the uh, late nineties said I went to grad school, went to Idaho and uh, just started using knives and woodworking and stuff in my daily life. Um, that That's probably the gist of it. The, the fact that I'd be using a knife to do whatever on a Tuesday afternoon, halfway up a mountain uh, sort of differentiated me from a lot of people uh, for a while, which gave me an angle for my writing. Very cool.
2: So. If you've ever heard the podcast before, and we all know you have, you know about the Dan-Kyle scale okay? on how you met your wife. All right. Well. Now, <laughs> Kyle met his wife in a very normal, acceptable, like, American kind of way. I picked mine up at her grandmother's wake. So there's a bit of a scale. We're just trying to figure out where you fall on the Dan Kyle scale.
1: I kind of fall in between somewhere because in one sense, it was kind of the girl next door. Um, in the literal sense, after college, she, was, she went to Case Western Reserve and was living with a bunch of uh, there were three guys and another girl. And they had this one big century house next door in Cleveland Heights. And I had the upstairs of a duplex to myself. And her bedroom was 15 feet from my kitchen sink. Um, And she
2: saw you looking through the window, didn't she?
1: um, I saw her ironing. I didn't know who she was. um, For the better part of probably seven months or so, she was traveling to Detroit for work. And so I got to know her roommates. Um, I mean, we were a bunch of guys right out of college, and somebody starts the grill. And if someone's grill was going, you just went and used their grill instead of starting your own. And drank some beers, hung out, talked, and they finally introduced me when she was in town for a party. Um, uh, in March that that I moved in, in like August and, uh, met her that following March, hit it off real well. And, uh, kind of have been together ever since for the most part, but I ended up funny story. I ended up starting to date her like two weeks before her birthday. And what the heck do you get someone for their birthday? that soon after you start like you don't want to scare them off or you don't want to seem like you're not interested either i ended up buying a couple of fisher price walkie-talkies and we so we could stand at the window and talk to each other uh, um, you romantic? Mm. yeah well i don't know <laughs> but, uh, it was it was fun it, it we we've been together so this was uh 1999 march so we got married several years later out in Vegas, and uh, moved out to Idaho, and um, moved back east to start a family. Yeah,
0: you you could have got her uh, some romantic uh, romantic things like Todd did the uh, the Slim Jims.
1: <laughs> what, what is uh, Slim Jim compared to walkie talkies <laughs> from Fisher Price? Uh, I would
0: I would think that the Slim Jims would be a lot more uh, towards Dan, and the walkie talkies would be a lot more towards me. <laughs> yeah.
2: You know, I get
1: I'm definitely on the Kyle side of it, but
2: hey look first of all, do you know how romantic you gotta be to pick a woman up at her grandmother's wake? All right, I'm just saying just because it was shady doesn't mean it wasn't romantic as hell, <laughs> but I've got to admit I've got to admit the walkie talkies that's uh, uh that's some next level stuff i mean that's the that's the come study in my temple kind of thing
0: yeah that's a
1: that's a pro move right
0: there,
2: yeah.
1: Well, it worked, I guess. Uh, we we've been together for 20 years. So.
2: I'm glad to <laughs> no, know you didn't waste that on some like weekend hookup. That is definitely a wife level move.
1: <laughs> it's worked out well.
2: Yeah, my hat's off to you, sir. Oh,
1: yeah. we 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 enjoyed hanging out with you and Beth when you came to visit. So
2: well, that's part of why my hat, hat is off to you. You so landed outside of your coverage. <laughs> well,
1: I'm in the club with you, so.
2: Either of our wives ever sober up, we're screwed.
1: (laughs) So, tailing into our
0: other one, do you have any tips on balancing work and family life?
1: Oh, I'm probably the worst. uh, I I guess the probably the biggest tip is don't volunteer for anything. Yeah, I started out volunteering as a K through four lacrosse coach for uh, girls because I played in high school and college, and uh, the coach's daughter decided to play softball and suddenly I found myself head coach of K through four and fast forward a couple years later and I end up running the middle school and K through four programs and head coaching middle school girls because the guy who'd been running its daughter is now a freshman in high school. And so suddenly I'm doing a lot more speaking. I, the Peter principle is in effect for <laughs> sure. I am way ahead of myself right now. And then uh similar situation with Cub Scouts for my son. So, I'm now a den leader. Just spent last weekend at adult leader training, and uh, yeah, I, I stay busy. And then I, I work for Knife Magazine, uh, more or less full time. So, yeah, uh, I, I guess I stay busy doing stuff with my kids uh, is probably the best home life thing. It's if I'm with them, then I'm if I'm coaching or doing or doing Scouts. So your advice yeah. is don't do it. Uh, you'll have more time if you don't volunteer for anything, but. By volunteering, I'm doing stuff with them too, so I don't know. It's a balance. <laughs> I've
2: always gone with, you'll just figure it
1: out. Run around with your hair on fire. Seems to work for me. Yeah. Cool. I can't imagine having twins, Kyle. That just <laughs> – uh, at least they've got a natural playmate. I don't know what you
2: did in a past life, but you did something pretty messed up, dude. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. It's
0: a, it's a lot of work, but it's a lot of fun too. I, I picked – uh pick the boys up on Mon or drop them off and pick them up on Mondays. Cause my, my wife's a teacher. So she tries to get her lesson plans and stuff done on Monday mornings and, or Monday after work. And uh, I pulled into the, into the driveway, got out of the, got out of the car and both of them ran up and I go, daddy, you came back. You came back. i like, <laughs> you know, don't know why you thinking when I drop you off here, I'm never going to pick
1: you up ever again, but they're pretty cute sometimes. I, my buddy uh, ended up with twins, but they were number four and number five. Wow. Ooh. And there is a, quite a great look on his face. The fir- his first time holding them, they, they got a candid shot where he, like, just looks completely overwhelmed. Well, they say if you're going to have twins, you should
0: have them before you have just one. So then you don't know how much more work it is to have two
1: than it is to have one. That seems reasonable. Two is a whole lot more than one. Yeah, I, I don't know what it's like to just have one kid. One kid you can integrate into your life. The second one sort of becomes your life. <laughs> like our, like when my daughter was in a car carrier, we'd take her into like Barley's Tap Room and get beer and pizza and just leave her asleep in the car carrier. When you have a second one, you can't really do that. All right.
2: So I'm overwhelmed, guys. I'm not sure. I'm trying to decide between Dragon's Milk, Guinness, or Guinness Blonde.
1: Oh, Guinness. Every day of the week and twice on Sundays. Well, yeah, there were, there were two Guinnesses there, Clay.
2: Yeah, there's Guinness Blonde, and then there's Guinness oh, Traditional. Guinness Blonde isn't Guinness. You know, actually, Guinness Blonde is what I usually use for a snake bite. A snake bite? I know, I know traditionally I should use harp, and harp is
1: good, but Guinness Blonde and cider is kind of lovely. If it's hot enough out, I guess. I, I guess Like moving to Tennessee gave me a new appreciation for piss beer. As much as I love Guinness – there is if it's 90 degrees out and you're wrenching on a Jeep, it, like Guinness just doesn't cut it. You want a coarse light.
2: Yeah. Yeah, you you cut the grass for an hour and a half in 96 degree temperatures and then go crack a Guinness.
1: No. Yeah, I that I've a new appreciation for piss beer living in the south. And
2: Kyle for uh, your reference, uh, a half pour cider and a half pour of lager is a snake bite, mm. and that is a lovely summer drink. I always heard that is a half and half. Well, and you can also do a half pour cider and a half pour of Guinness. We always call that a velvet sledgehammer.
1: A velvet sledgehammer. huh? <laughs> yes, yeah. I can see why. Actually, I get that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, a little piece of
0: trivia for me. Uh, do you know that Guinness was the first beer I ever had? It's kind of, kind of a rough one to start with.
1: Or awesome. It's the first beer my babies had, actually. Yeah. When they were uh, teething, they used to. Uh, I used to dip a finger in the in the foam and. Uh, They'd gnaw on my finger for a while, so that was – uh. they started with Guinness.
0: Yeah, you got to uh, do what you got to do. I, I would
2: uh, – I, I was bourbon. I would uh, rub bourbon on their gums. Wow, I'm a bad, bad parent.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you said so, it, not us.
2: So how <laughs> is it that Guinness was your first beer?
0: I never uh, drank until I was 21. So on my 21st birthday, I had a had a beer with a couple friends and my uh, parents. I'm sorry. So
2: I, I just throw the bullshit flag. I'm, I, seriously, no. you went. You were 21 before you had your first drink of alcohol.
0: Yep. Wow. There are a lot of my friends in college that can back that up. Uh, I go to that a lot, lot of I is- go to a lot of parties and stuff. It was pretty funny. So they would say. Have Kyle come and make sure we get back to the dorm okay, but him take pictures of us while we're drunk or just risk it all together. <laughs> so usually they'd invite me along. You know, when I was playing
2: rugby, we had a born again guy that was hardcore, no drinking. So he was always our driver. And it was, God, I, it was probably two and a half seasons before I picked up on the scam. But he'd give us all a ride home, so he would pile in. He had this big LTD, and he'd pile us all in, and we'd start driving, and we'd start to – it was hot. The car was rolling. We'd all kind of start to get drowsy, and he'd pull into a gas station. Hey, I'm out of gas. I'm out of gas. I need gas money. So we all all dig in, come up with a couple of bucks. Well, one night I hadn't drank quite as much as I usually did, and I realized that he drove for like five or ten more minutes until everybody started to get sleepy, and then he'd pull into another gas station. Hey, I'm out of gas. I'm out of gas. I need gas money. <laughs>
0: this guy was making like 45 50 bucks 50 a night. <laughs> you got to do what you got to do, man. Yeah.
2: No, I, I respected it. I mean I made him cut me in for 20 percent to not rat him out,
0: but I respected it. Just on the just on the one day that you didn't drink enough to notice. Yeah,
2: I mean it was the principle of the thing.
1: <laughs> That's funny.
2: All right, we have veered way off of the designated questions.
1: Way off topic.
0: <laughs> how does your experience being a woodworker and a river guide play into your knife philosophy of how, what kind of what kind of knives you like and what kind of knives
1: you gravitate towards? I guess a couple of fronts. One is. Any knife that I take to the woods, the sort of um, my sort of minimum sort of requirements is I, I have to feel like I can take down a couple of like two inch saplings to make a stretcher or a travois to have to drag somebody out. I'd be fishing in the Smoky Mountain backcountry. You could be several miles from anything. And that would be uh, so that that was my minimum requirement is having the confidence in the tool I had with me that I could I could use it to make a shelter or do any of that sort of. I don't need to cut through logs, but certainly cut down some saplings. And as far as the woodworking goes, I would say just really respecting a sharp a sharp tool. Um, my first thing when I was writing for Truth About Knives, was just as a volunteer, was a review of the Tormek sharpener. I knew it was a piece of gear that a lot of people had probably never seen in the knife realm, and there is no better tool on earth for putting a freakish edge on chisels and plane blades than a Tormek.
2: Sharp, sharpening cap irons is where I got my education on sharpening.
0: What's a cap iron?
2: Um, It's the blade in a pl- in a hand plane. Oh. Not only do you have to have the, the edge very precise, but it's got to be really polished so that you can make very, very, very fine cuts. Some of the old articles that I read in some of the old uh, woodworking magazines talked about that the minimum requirement for the polish on your cap iron was – you need to be able to hold it at a 90-degree angle on newspaper and read the newsprint in the reflection of the uh, the blade.
1: That's a little excessive, but I get the yeah. point.
2: Yeah, it's excessive until you start dealing with some really complex grain like some uh, like really knotty oak or some crotch mahogany or something like that. Hmm. And now I'm just totally justifying the lengths I went to sharpen. <laughs>
1: Well, when you're talking about the Tormek, the other thing it's amazing for, and I don't do a lot of wood turning, but you get all those weird gouges and all these weird, odd shaped things. And the Tormek, there's a jig for everything, and so if you're having to like sharpen something that's kind of scooped out, like a gouge, and thing, having the right the right jig on the those, it's a low speed uh, for those who aren't familiar with it, grinding wheel that goes through a trough of water, so it's always cooling down your edge as it grinds. Then it has a a series of jigs, everything from axes to planer blades to knives to chisels and plane blades, um, gouges for wood turning. It's a pretty incredible system. It comes from Sweden.
2: When you go wrong with a pairing chisel or a cap iron edge, that's an inconvenience. When you go wrong with one of the gouges, if you're turning, that's catastrophic.
1: If you're lucky, it's just catastrophic for your raw material. Yeah. It has catastrophic consequences for stabbing yourself in the arm. Yeah, no.
2: (laughs) You know, there's a lot of spinning blades of death that I'll work with, but I have not, uh, I don't turn yet. I mean, that's just a whole new level of things you got to worry about.
1: It's an entire skill set unto itself. I mean, you could be just a wood turner. Like, never deal with table saws, never deal with just wood turn. I mean, guys who can do everything from turning their own table legs to hand planing the table. It's amazing the stuff that people can do. I'm a a high level hobbyist is is really how I describe myself. Uh, I've got a fully outfitted shop and can do stuff, but I'm I'm by no means an artist or an expert.
2: People don't appreciate some of the subcategories. I'd make tables all day, but I'm not making you chairs. You want chairs made? Uh, I'm not your guy. I'll make you the table.
1: I make a lot of jewelry boxes and cutting boards because it's guilt-free shop time. My wife says, Hey, we've got a wedding coming up or holidays are coming up. What can you go make? And so it's guilt-free time to make sawdust.
2: Yeah. And there's some immediate gratification there.
1: Yes and no. And that's, it's funny. I, I figure I'll end up making a few knives at some point because I'm too ADD to progress farther in woodworking. I'm not the kind of person who can make a drawer slide And then wait six months before I put the thing together. Like I like the idea of making an entire something in two or three days that just it it fits my A D D
2: That's why I don't do woodworking anymore. I could do a cabinet over six months and hate the project before it's over. Or I can make a couple of knives a week and every one is a new and exciting project.
1: Yep, that's I, I I have as I said I haven't made any knives yet, but I I, I hear a little bit of the sirens call. Just not that I ever want to go and do it on a hardcore basis. Right. I just think it'll make me a better writer if I if I go through the process more. I've actually been offered a chance to go out to Murray Carter's uh bladesmithing school, and I need to find a way to take two months or two weeks off of my life and go out to Oregon and do that.
2: But All right, so this that's off, a big. List. This offer is going to sound like shite right after that comment, but I was about to say. <laughs> anytime you want to come down we'll do a little fishing we can uh you can make a knife at the shop deal Everybody,
1: make a point of y'all it heard that. Not that far away
2: y'all heard that he's coming down
1: and <laughs> <laughs> you just want me to scout your water for you pretty much so
2: <laughs> so <laughs> speaking of knives what is your favorite knife it, it can be pattern or specific knife.
1: favorite like pattern like well You had a couple of questions in, like, specific knife, like the ones that I'd run into a burning building to grab, um, I'll get back to. Yeah. Favorite pattern in general is the Kephart. As a Smoky Mountain fishing guide, I mean, it's what the man carried on the same rivers that I was guiding. It it, it sort of went through its natural selection process and refined. I mean, it's right here in these woods. And so it's sort of the pinnacle of what one needs to get around in the Smokies.
2: It was designed for the environment that you spent your time
1: in. Exactly. It's like if I were up in the north woods, like a Finnish Puco would be would be it, you know. But there's, there, it's just such the perfect blade for this area of the country. If you're talking like my favorite knives I own, there are two that I'd run into a burning building for. Um, the first is my Kimbreed Model 15, which is the first custom knife I ever bought at my first blade show in 2014. Aside on that one, I was... Supposed to go as the assistant to the editor of Truth About Knives, and he ended up uh, resigning right before Blade Show. And I went into my first Blade Show, having to cover the entire thing as the only Truth About Knives representative, and only having corresponded with Doug Ritter and um, Will Woods of Woods Blade, uh, Woods Blade Works, who was the third. And, and oh yeah, and uh, Ben Peterson, who was with CRKT at that point. And I knew no one, I had met no one, I had corresponded email with those three guys and I walked in and it was like drinking from a fire hose. I was so overwhelmed. I was a trout bum masquerading as a knife person. Uh anyone who's familiar with uh imposter syndrome, I I I, I had it like a classic case, I just felt so out of place.
2: If there's one name to drop in the knife community, Doug Ritter is a pretty strong one though.
1: Well, he's he's phenomenal about reaching out. I mean, it, it's some of it's self interest in what he's trying to do, and, and interest for the industry. But yeah, he makes such a concerted effort to reach out to small niche guys. I mean, he he really helped put me on the map. I, I I won't I won't deny that at all. He's he's a good person to have an in with because he helps you get an in with a lot of other people too, and he's just a good guy. Yeah. So.
2: And how strong was your oh <laughs> moment when you walked into blade show the first time and said, I'm going to do what? <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, I, I, as I said, it's like drinking from a fire hose. Like there's just, I can't think of a better, better description than that. I sucked. I, I, I sucked. I just know it. <laughs> I've been to four blade shows and I still get it like almost every time I'm in there. This year was kind of interesting now that I'm with knife magazine it it's different. And I, I, was a slightly bigger fish in the same pond um this time around which was kind of neat. You're swinging a little more timber now. Yeah, you are. It, it I I'm I'm not going to deny it. Houston built a heck of a product and Mark has been there since the I think mid, uh, mid 80s, late 80s and he's uh running things now and Houston passed away several years ago and it's been a one I fell up. I mean there's just no other way to put it. I I went from trout bum to just a blogger to digital editor of the longest running publication in the knife industry, monthly publication. So um, it's been a heck of a ride.
2: When did you know you wanted to make the transition from fishing guide and part-time writer to writer part-time fishing guide?
1: Like what was the, (laughs) well, that decision kind of evolved over the years uh, is running the guide service was great when, the kids didn't require as much time. Um, now I get to the point where if I want to take people fishing that don't know how to fish, I'm going to go with my kids. Um, I was, you know, <laughs> that's really it. I, my daughter's my my greatest fishing buddy in the world, and my ten year old daughter Emery. So anyway, I was I, so as I was doing less guiding, I was falling a little bit behind, and I was I was writing. I I started writing when I was a guide out in Idaho, writing for a local newspaper. Uh, covering county commission meetings and zoning stuff. It was, and I got to write an occasional outdoor column, which was fun. It was a great experience. And then when Truth About Guns was spun off Truth About Knives and was looking for writers, I volunteered. I was writing to start paying my bills as I was guiding less. And finally it got to the tipping point last year where I was like, this is stupid. I'm not guiding much at all. And all of my money that I make writing all these nights is going back into the uh, business. So I decided to close my business, and about two weeks later, um, I get a phone call from my editor, at Truth About, well, Truth about Guns editor, uh, Dan Zimmerman, saying we had been bought by uh, Wide Open Media. If you know Wide Open Spaces on Facebook, kind of a buzzfeed of the outdoor industry, does a lot of viral hunting videos and stuff. Well, they were buying the Truth About Guns. We were the sack of batting practice baseballs that went along in the deal. And so I was let go, and they, if you can still go to Truth About Knives and it's a zombie, it hasn't been updated in over a year. Cool because my byline's still out there. There's a lot of my writing out there, a lot of knife reviews. I was able to keep a bunch of it because of uh, I hadn't had a contract. So we, we ported a little bit over to the new gig, some of my experiential stuff, like my visit to top ni- Top's Knives and things like that.
2: Turns out if they don't pay you for it, it's not theirs.
1: Uh, something like that, or if you don't sign a contract, really is the is the ah. biggest part of it. That it worked out well, and and we actually not, ended up not using nearly as much of that on the newknifemagazine.com magazine dot com website. Um, there's so much of our own material. I mean, we we've got archives going back to 1975. The first hundred days, we had our hundred knives and hundred days giveaway, and that was a monumental amount of work, but it went off great. We gave away some really cool knives. It, it was a good 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 launch for for the new act, the new uh launch. I mean, we longest running in publication in the knife industry and we just really launched a website of any consequence last June.
2: I love the publication. I mean, I, I don't always learn what I expect to learn, but I always I always pull a nugget out of every issue. But access to the archives that is that's worth the price of subscription even if you never get another issue to be able to go back and research that is absolute gold
1: it'll be even better when we get the search stuff dialed in it's still pretty rough right now i am learning so much i i it, it's incredible mark is literally the expert world's expert on the Bowie nice. knife yeah and i'll walk into work one day and there'll be like an 1840s michael price sitting on my desk <laughs> uh, he's got a museum quality collection we use a uh, a genuine World War II Fairbairn dagger as a letter opener in the office.
2: <laughs> I love everything that is both wrong and right about
1: that. It works really, really well. Well, it just—I don't know if you've ever held a genuine Fairbairn. It just wants to poke something. It—I have felt very few knives that just feel so alive in your hand as a Fairbairn. Hmm. It's pretty cool. It's neat. I just never know. I. As I said, I got a Gil Hibbon carving set I traded Mark. Uh he's gotten me into the uh old rusty pocket knives, as uh Mike Crenshaw likes to say. And I traded him a nineteen twenty to thirty uh Utica physician's knife. Ah. Methylatum pearl handle, beautiful, almost mint condition, not quite. I traded him for a nineteen sixty five Gil Hibbin carving set. It's got the Manti Utah stamp. And uh I never know what I'm gonna see. It's it's been a hoot. Other than the Kephart,
2: what is your hey, I've got to run out and use this knife.
1: Well, the run into the burning, I've got a bit of a confession. I was actually thinking about this today. This is the first time I've told anyone. I haven't even told Mark. So my other knife I was going to say is my Murray Carter, that I'd go in and run into a burning building. I have to send it back to Murray Carter because I was a bonehead, but I've been putting this off because I fear the answer that I will get back is that I need to- You heard it here first, people. Yes, this is my knife confession. Um, the, 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 solution is that I need to commit seppuku, but one night I, I normally only pull the Murray Carter. I make like 60 pints of salsa a year. I, I can it <laughs> from tomatoes in my garden. And I usually, like, I, 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 when I pull out the Murray Carter, it's when I've got out my good wooden cutting board and a big bushel basket of tomatoes, and I'm ready to go to town for 45 minutes. I don't usually use it on a uh, weeknight cutting vegetables for dinner, because I'm too distracted, there's too much going on. But I had just gotten it back from uh spa treatment and the first time using it, I was smashing garlic and I didn't notice I ground the tip into the cutting board and snapped the tip off it. And I need to send it back. But I am just so embarrassed about that. But I figure you—you you heard it here first on Knife Perspective. Uh, Clay Alders uh, broke to the tip off of his Murray Carter, which it, I, I am still heartbroken. But I'm so embarrassed that I have not sent it back to Carter San. The yet.
2: first step for resolution is admittance. So you've confessed your sin. Now you can be absolved of your sin.
1: <laughs> yep. Yeah. So that, that, that and my Kim Breed are the two, God, we've, this has been a heck of a diversion. Um, the Kim Breed and the Marie Carter are the two knives, the two individual knives that I'd go in and go grab out of a burning but
2: building. But what are the ones that you, you've got the ones that are, that you only use on special occasions? That's you you, you're going to the burning mm-hmm. building. I only use this for special occasions. What's the one that, when, when you got to go to the woods, like, hey, I've got this in my hand. I got to go
1: cut some stuff. Um, What's your user? What's your beater? Honestly, the one that I've carried the most for the the final year of my guide career, and I I still have it on my belt of my waders is the uh, sepr 4 Again, a Kephart pattern. I added some uh, uh, cutting board liners to it. The scales are a little thin on it, but uh, that thickened it up a bit. And I, I just well, that's
2: because you have ginormous
1: hands. Not in particular, but I I just love this. I I it again the Kephart pattern. The size is just so good for what I do. Um, I'm pretty sure it's 1095, which I mean, a bushcraft knife in 1095, you can't go wrong. Yeah. So
2: keep it oiled and you're good to go. Yep.
1: Yeah. Well, it's got that, uh, tumbled finish on it. It's, it does a really good job actually of, uh, corrosion resistance. I've, I've been really impressed. It's been, it's been dunked in the smoky mountain streams quite a few times and <laughs> and, 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 and it stays pretty clean. Cool.
0: What, what knife do you always take with you when you go out guiding or camping?
1: Well I was gonna say that is that that one, um before that I I I my Mora Bushcraft black is in the uh in the rotation. Some of the other ones I've really loved to carry, uh because I've I've carried knives when I review them as well. Uh Wilmot uh Warney, which is a real ugly, kind of an A ten looking knife. It's one of those knives that's so ugly, it's kind of like cute. It's a gnarly uh wear Warncliff thing that I just I'm really fond of. Um, the SE Youngless II, which is big, but in the spring, when you have to clear some limbs out of fishing holes and stuff, that's a good chopper that isn't too big to carry on your belt. Uh, what are some of the other ones that I've used along the way? Caleb White, uh, he's a custom maker out of New Hampshire. Um, one of his knives I've carried a bunch is, a uh, Penance. Uh, it's a, it's kind of a gentleman's fixed blade. It's an interesting one, um, with linen micarta and, uh, Hamon on it. I, he's a real good up and coming maker. I'm a real fan of uh, Caleb White's work um uh, what are some of the other knives i've carried guiding gerber strongarm that's probably my favorite gerber to come out in the last several years uh that's very very solid knife those are the big ones there have been some others along the way but th- those are definitely the highlights cool
2: getting to review a bunch of knives and work with a n- bunch of knife makers what's your grail knife what's the oh boy what's the, the <laughs> knife you just
1: the next Kephart to come on the market, like original. Um, <laughs> there's one that's rumored to be out there that I I think would be uh, a grail knife for me. I mean, production knives are, are, aren't are grail knives and to me in general. So it has to be something kind of special or something with some history to it. I, I mean, it, I'm lucky that I, I'm well enough off that within reason, I'm not just going to go drop $1,500 on a knife because I could. But if the right thing comes along, I, I certainly can. I, I've got a, I've, I've got a couple of Eastwind knives, including one of his original Keparts from the uh, Becker project. That's, I mean, it, it's has hard to top that one. I mean, on a, not, I'm not blowing smoke at Dan, but there are only twelve of them. He owns one. One's in the museum, which means only ten of them are in private hands. So, that one's obviously pretty special. I, I mean, I, it was never a grail because I knew I was getting it from the beginning. It kind of that.
2: Yeah. I think you've got number three.
1: I love it. I mean, I just, and, ha, and I have the Mike McCarter too. I, if if you've seen the free issue of knife magazine on the website, um, we have the Kephart article in it, which talks about the original Cole brothers and the, the making of the BK 62 and Dan and Mike McCarter's being the only two knife makers in the world to have exclusive access for custom versions of it. And they both made near as damn it reproductions. And, uh, they are both um just beautiful some subtle differences between the two they each have their own their own interpretation of what they were seeing but um having both those knives that appear in the article i mean it, it it's hard to top that
2: well and mike has really really refined the the reproduction of the original mm-hmm. and i've i tried to make the version that Kephart would make if he lived today and Mike has done a phenomenal job of of perfecting the exact copy of the original i mean he
1: I think he ekes you out slightly on the handle, and I think you eked him out on the blade grind i i mean but i are so a toss up but I, I think that I think that something about his handle is just and I might just have a slightly thinner version of yours. I just like his handle slightly more, and your blade grind I think you'd nail and, and that
2: would stand to reason i I, I spend a lot more time in front of a grinder than he does.
1: He's a Knoxville police sergeant, very close to put it, finishing his 20, getting his pension, and then making knives full-time, which sounds like a pretty good gig.
2: I meant that because he forges so much, not as a ding to him. Mm-hmm. I want to clarify that.
1: Oh, I, oh, God, no. I, that was not how I took it anyway.
2: Okay. Well, I just wanted to make sure because
1: <laughs> – No, I, I, I've seen – I think I introduced you guys to each other at that Beckerhead gathering. You did? and um, And –
2: it's I I've enjoyed kind of going back and forth because to your point we both saw different things in the design things that I saw he didn't quite see and things that I couldn't quite get to line up he saw it and I didn't so it has been great to go back and forth with him
1: it's I I one of the things I have loved about being a writer in the knife industry is watching is just sitting on the sidelines and watching knife makers collaborate. At this point in my career, where I wasn't at that first Blade Show, I am very fluent in knife. But sitting down and watching two real artists, like, debate a finer point of something, it's really amusing, entertaining, informative. I mean, I love it.
2: Yeah, the last Beckerhead gathering, he and I probably spent 45 minutes talking about adjusting the grind line and where that moves the balance point. And then I looked up, and nobody else was standing around us.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think I, I would have wandered off by then too. I think. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, "Hey, dude, you
2: two um, poured the sh- out of us. We're
1: we're moving on." <laughs> I got people to see.
0: Man, you really make those Beckerhead gatherings sound like a blast, Dan.
1: Oh, they were the greatest.
2: You know, if you skip that part and go right to the roast pork and the moonshine, you'd get it.
1: <laughs> gotcha. The moonshine cherries on a uh, banana pudding, man. That w- that was the. That was the ticket.
2: I don't remember that.
1: <laughs> yeah, that. by by dessert, you don't remember much of anything. So, Clay,
0: what are some of the 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 steels you like to use in a knife? Do you like the stainless steels? Do you like high carbon? Uh, what kind of? What do you prefer?
1: It depends on the, the on what I'm using it. I'm a little more into the super steels on a bush knife. That's right, baby. Um, than I am on. Oh, you preach it. on an everyday carry folder um i 'd like to be able to i, I think s thirty v is perfectly enough in in most or s thirty five in most everyday folders anything higher than that i can 't just swipe i 'm actually one of the rare people who uses the screw holes on my uh spiderco Sharp maker and it actually is permanently affixed to one of my workbenches so if i 've got something in s thirty five and I need to touch it up, I can do it in thirty seconds whereas if i 've got crew wear or something crazy. I mean, i got to break out the Wicked Edge or something to, to work on it because the Spyderco just doesn't do it.
0: I didn't know there were screw holes in the uh, Spyderco Sharpmaker.
1: <laughs> Mine, it, there might not be any more. Mine is from 1999 when I was working at Newman Outfitters in Solon, Ohio. Wow. Um, and I still have it. And uh, I've sold many of them since then to be – like just recommending them to people because it is – For 95% of what people do, sharpening knives, it is probably the most idiot-proof way to do it Mm. and come up with a really good result. Yeah. But there's 5% of the knives out there either because of the steel or the size or just being weird and awkward. There's something that I got to break out something more complicated.
0: Yeah the sharp maker. I actually have an interesting story about that one. So I was out in Colorado doing some testing for, uh, my full-time job, Navistar. And, uh, we ended up finishing up a a day early. So, uh, my flight back wasn't until the next day. So I took a trip over to Golden and, uh, or went to the Spiderco uh, shop. I was just, uh, just a person wandering around, so I didn't really get to talk to anybody really cool. But uh, wanted to get one of the sharp makers, and uh, I thought, what better place to get one than than Spyderco's, uh headquarters? And uh, they go in, and the guy sharpens my knife or my Spyderco knife that I had, and uh, I'm like, yeah, I want to get one of these. And he like, I see the price, and I'm like, you know, this is like fifty dollars cheaper on Amazon, right? <laughs> and he goes, uh, "Yeah, this is the best price we can do here at the store." And I'm like, "Really?" So I ended up buying it on Amazon.
2: <laughs> but you realize it's cheaper on Amazon, right? Like you handing it to me is not worth fifty dollars. Yeah.
0: So <laughs> if it had been like ten or fifteen, maybe, but yeah, it was a little too much for me at the yeah, time. 50's hard to stomach. Yeah, especially since that was like. 50% of the cost of the sharp maker. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yep. What kind of
2: handle materials do you like? You
1: um, I like micarta, but I like it, especially as a fishing guide because the way that it just plumps up just slightly when it gets wet and just gives you that much more, more tackiness to it, drips your hand. I So I think that, yeah, I, I hear Dan chuckling again. Uh,
2: <laughs> the best but, things swell up a little bit when they're wet. <laughs> And they feel yes, good in your yes, hands. Yes, they do.
1: <laughs> but, again, as a fishing guide, when your hands are covered in fish slime and all that, I, I, I like natural micarta. I just am going to power through this. <laughs> you know, at this point, I'm
2: sure there's a trap, and I'm just going to pass.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I'm not, natural micarta. Um, G10's okay. I don't like it in water. I like it on – I like textured G10 on uh, on folders, but – I I I I like the Micarta in a fixed blade. Okay.
2: Um for the texture or the feel in your hand.
1: The way it as I said, the way that it it becomes just just slightly raised up the texture and it, it it bites in your hand when it's wet.
2: No, I'm I'm holding out to hear you say because it swells when it's
1: wet again. Yes, I know and I'm I'm <laughs> avoiding it like a plague.
0: <laughs> Have you used any of the the crosscut Micarta where the all the layers are perpendicular to the the handle? Have you seen any of that?
1: I've seen it. I've seen it, but I have not used it to the point where I could render judgment on it. As far as if it per- behaves differently, it looks cool for sure.
0: Yeah, the there's a guy, uh, GL Hansen and Sons, that makes some some really cool stuff out of. He was in California, now he's in Idaho, I think. I I also have some. I bought. That's a bit of a trend. Yeah, I. Uh, yeah.
2: Hey, look, you run a business, you're leaving California.
0: <laughs> one of the knife shows that I was at up in Wisconsin, one of the guys had uh, just a ton of this uh, two-inch thick original Westinghouse uh, macarta that I ended up buying. That's I bought, a
1: solid find. I bought all. <laughs> that ivory macarta. No, it was
0: just the, the regular. It was like a oh. chocolate, uh, dark brown. Okay. Uh, and I bought I bought all six blocks that he had on the the table. Yeah, that's
2: a solid find. It will straight destroy a saw blade. Oh yeah, but uh, it looks beautiful on a handle. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, I was I was pretty excited to have that, and haven't haven't found anything that looks kind of that good so far. I've had people actually argue with me that it's not wood. Like you do know I made made this <laughs> handle, right?
2: <laughs> I I'm with you there. I've had a couple of. No, I actually made it. I literally know where it came from.
0: Yeah. I literally know everything about this thing.
2: And the the ingrain, I first I first started getting grain from uh Joe Flowers. He had an industrial source. But uh I've used some of the uh I've used some of the other. My God, he's got uh he's got some of the wavy stuff now. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember what he calls it, but it's got a really distinct wave pattern to it. So it's ingrained, but it's got a wave pattern
0: to it that is awesome. I think that's the GL Hanson and sons guy. He used, he used to be unique Bacarda. Yeah. And then changed his name because I guess it was too similar to a different company.
2: Yeah. And, and he does some, some wavy ingrain. That's phenomenal.
0: Mm. Yeah. There's a girl, Mickey that, uh, she's like a uh artist that helps sew up a whole bunch of stuff. He did some really cool uh Instagram live videos and stuff uh, a few months ago. Of them and he had, he had a picture of his they had a van that was like completely full of all sorts of fabric from the from like a store and he was going to take it to like an industrial cutter that was going to cut it down to the the sizes he needed it to be. So uh what what do you look for in a in a knife when you're kind of just thumbing through for designs and stuff like that, is there, do you like more belly? Do you like a drop
1: point? What's your kind of favorite knife to knife shape? Hmm. Um, probably a drop point. I'm not a big, not big into huge like clip point type Bowie style. Um, just simple again, like the Kephart, it's the most unassuming looking pattern. If you're looking more toward everyday carry knives and what I look for, I'm a big fan of a Warncliffe blade. I like how a lot of what I have to do, like parents relate to this uh, box tops for <laughs> your kid's school. A nice point, a nice pointy cliff just kind of you can you can stab right into that box and do a nice job cutting out the box tops. Those, uh, it, it's kind of a goofy everyday carry task, but any parent with school age children is well acquainted with that one.
0: So, do you for a Warncliffe, Do you like a traditional folder or a slip joint, or do you like a one that locks or fixed blade?
1: Little of both, any of I said, I've got that Wilmot that I really like. I, I like more of a drop point probably when you're going into like an actual bush blade than a Warncliffe. But for, again, for detail work, for everyday carry stuff, that Warncliffe I think is the best everyday carry shape you can get. Mm-hmm. And um,
2: kind of moving from knives in general to you specific, how did you get started in publications? I mean, you talked about being. Firefighter and a guide, but how did
1: that shift into writing? And an archaeologist. Don't forget that.
0: Well, as, <laughs> oh yeah,
1: yeah. Well, the archaeology thing. Well, that was that was fun. That was because uh that was because of the chicks, wasn't I, it? I, go ahead. Be honest. You can admit it. The archaeology thing actually is because when my mom when I was little, my mom was finishing her PhD in art history and would take me down to University Circle in Cleveland, and she would drop me off at the Natural History Museum when she went to go do research at the art museum there because they're just across the circle from each other. And I'd run around with the Lucy skeleton and the dinosaurs and okay, all of that kind of stuff. So I just, I've always been interested in it.
2: A few of our fl- fans, all right, we got five of them, but one of them reads Dresden.
1: Hey, you're, you're growing.
2: We are. One <laughs> of them reads Dresden files and is absolutely having a giggle fest right now.
1: I can't say I'm familiar with Dresden Files. What is that?
2: Uh, it is a book series. Off the air, I'll tell you all about it. Because okay. I don't want to get totally distracted and maybe reveal too much of my inner geek. Are,
1: are you one of the five fans you're talking about? <laughs> maybe I might be. I, I, I hope we've. <laughs> I, I've maybe a- added number six with the uh, posting them on the uh, uh, knife magazine newsfeed. No, no, no. Your wife listens. That's seven. We have seven followers right now. <laughs> Sweet. we got a few more than that
2: (laughs) but i'm sorry when you started talking about sue i geeked out a little bit i didn't mean to distract you so you're running around the natural history museum
1: yeah and so that i I had a genuine love of uh anthropology and so after after college i majored in anthropology at Kenyon, and as i said did some archaeology work and made stone tools and butchered goats and It was actually Flint napped, or well, if you freeze chocolate, it actually, uh, I don't know if you know this, it uh, has conchoidal fractures just like Flint. So if you you can freeze a block of chocolate and Flint nap it, and we made a hand axe for one of my professors in a walk-in freezer in the uh, dining hall one year for his birthday. That's pretty awesome. (laughs) On a good day, I can, that's about as far as I can get on the Flint napping scale. That's
2: way better than a poop knife. (laughs)
1: yes chocolate better than poop
2: (laughs) nine out of ten toddlers agree
1: (laughs) (laughs) the tenth one's too busy swinging it
2: (laughs) yeah i babysat that kid
1: so
0: (laughs) how did you start getting writing in the the publications
1: well that as i said i started writing part-time as a as a fishing guide out in idaho and and then moved to tennessee was guiding and uh, Truth About Guns spun off their uh, Truth About Knives website. And I've been shooting my whole life, since I was like seven or eight. I've done a little bit of hunting. I'm a decent shotgun shot on Dove and stuff. But I didn't feel like I had anything to add to the uh, conversation compared to military, law enforcement, people who actually have done considerable training in firearms. They announced they're spinning off the uh, Truth About Knives website. And I said I mentioned the Tormek. I felt between being a woodworker, an archaeologist, a fishing guide, an eagle scout. I had some bona fides when it came to knives that I didn't have in the firearm community, but this would give me an in. With The Truth About Guns, I'd been reading the website for a long time, and they seemed like a cool bunch of guys, and it was a heck of a ride. It, it set me up for where I am now, which I, I couldn't be happier.
2: We've been dancing around it. Do you want to talk a, a little bit about uh, about that whole ride? or?
1: Yeah, the Knife Magazine thing. Um, as I said, we're the oldest, uh, longest-running— I mean, the truth about knives. We've,
2: we've been pimping Knife Magazine for years. Oh. Well, weeks.
1: Oh, that's—well, the truth about knives, it was a great experience. And I I I don't harbor any ill will toward Dan, especially. It wasn't his call to let me go. Farrago sold it. Good for him. Yay capitalism. He made a lot of money doing so. He built a heck of a site. It's the most red firearm site on the Internet. And to just be a tangential part of it, I had my own little fiefdom over there, and it was a it was a hoot. I got to set my own agenda, and as long as I was getting content out, that's all that mattered. And to them, I, it was real hands off.
2: So you were editor about Truth About Knives, which was the spinoff of
1: yeah, exactly. Um, I was I was a volunteer writer, and then I was the managing editor for five years or four years, I guess. Um, wrote for them for five, was the managing editor for four. It set me up. Mark could have found somebody with a greater overall knowledge of knife, of knives, especially in the historical stuff. than he got with me. He could have found someone with more publishing experience than me, but he could not find that Venn diagram 10 minutes from his house. And um,
2: Mark is the editor of knife
1: magazine. Yes. He is a publisher, editor, owner, and uh grand poobah. Um, and just, I mean, he's, brilliant he's he grew up doing the knife show circuit in iowa with his father who is himself a heck of a collector and knows an awful lot about repairing 19th century switchblades and stuff i mean it's he 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 came from the right spot and it set him up and he took it and ran with it and has been doing it for a long time and i've learned so much just going into the office every day it's been great
2: so to streamline a little bit you got to start writing for truth about knives became editor of truth about knives when they got sold you started working for mark and that's where you are now
1: that is correct and started he needed someone to launch this new website project and i was a very good fit sorry to lay that lay that out C A T
2: equals cat style but some of oh. some of the listeners. No, it's fine. Some of the listeners to the podcast are not industry guys, so I just wanted to connect the dots.
1: Yeah, that no, that that's fine. And it it I've had a very convoluted path between the firefighting, the archaeology, the fishing guide, the boat builder. I mean, it's it's been an interesting waste of a uh, better part of my working career. I've liked it quite a bit.
2: <laughs> what was your inspiration to write?
1: I went to an all-boys private school that writing was really, really focused. It was, it was really important to the curriculum, no matter what the subject. And so when I got to Kenyon, which is known as this famous English school, E.O. Doctorow went there. P.F. Klug, Paul Newman's the most famous graduate probably. But Oh, hey, you know, I've heard of him. Yeah. Paul Newman, uh, you know, when you're buying the salad dressing and the spaghetti sauce, the educational charity is Kenyon's endowment. Oh, so, I didn't know that. Yeah, he got kicked off the football team for getting in a bar fight. Really, and that's when he focused. That's when he focused on acting full time.
2: God, I, you know, I respect him a little bit more right now.
0: <laughs> Are there any other writers that kind of have inspired your writing style that have influenced kind of your format or your your thoughts on stuff? Um,
1: I don't know, like writers particular. I, I I really do dig Tim Stetzer's work. And, uh, in particular, uh, Kim Breed, again, he writes for the publication that shall not be named, (laughs) but he's still a good guy. Um, but, uh, honestly, the, the biggest inspiration for the, what I do on Knife Magazine actually was the, um, was, uh, Instapundent, which is a political website by, uh, law professor at university of tennessee and he it's just a news aggregator of everything political he can find and he'll do like a block quote and a link and a a little snarky comment or two and so if you look on the knife magazine website we have above the fold is all original knife magazine content below the fold is our never-ending news feed and i update that six eight ten times a day if i can and there's always new content. It's other people's content, but I'm aggregating it from other sources. I, I share the Knife Perspective podcast and a couple of others. Um, lots of YouTube videos, lots of knife reviews from uh, some of the the real well-known knife reviewers, Everyday Commentary uh, being one of them, Everyday Tactical Vids, which is a YouTube channel, Tim Carpenter, uh big fan of his work, uh, Cutlery Lover, another one, um, Gideon's Tactical. There are lots of great knife reviewers out there. Um, Nick Shabazz is always – he's one of the OGs of the Internet Knife Review, and he's he's always entertaining. So more than the reviewers, I don't know the writing style per se, but I just admire some of the work that people put together in their comprehensive reviews.
2: Do you have a process? Do you have your writing place? Like do you have the, the special desk where you go to write? Do you have the the writing elixir, the – the texture of you, You've been out my
1: workshop before.
2: Yeah, I have, but I wanted to set you up for that one.
1: Yeah, that's 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 where I do most of my stuff. When the kids go to bed, um, I come out to the workshop. My wife turns in early too. I'm a night owl, so I'll be up to like one in the morning, writing, editing, or just reading knife or blade forums or whatever the case may be. But yeah, that's what I do out here in the shop. That's yeah, that 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 really is my my home, my writing place. It's where the magic gets done. Do you
2: have any? Like, is it just kind of free form or do you have a, okay, I need 800 words. This is the process to get it.
1: There's sort of a cutoff at about, there's a cutoff at about 250 words. I can sit down and crank out 250 words. No problem. No setup. Get my point across, whatever. If it's going to be something much more than that, I need to start writing it in my head. And I'll just jot down like the lead sentence on a couple of different paragraphs or just start composing little bits and pieces and then very stream of consciousness. And then I'll go back kind of spit a whole bunch of stuff out onto a page and then I'll go back and sort it a little bit and refine it. And It's worked for me. I don't know if it's the best way, but I've done it a while.
2: Now, I mean, I've, I've talked to other writers and everybody's got their own style. Some of them like some professional writers, it's a, it's a nine to five. So 10 o'clock, I sit down, and I have to have a certain number of words. And some are part-time writers, and it's just whenever the the spirit moves them.
1: Uh, I'm pretty much going out at 10 o'clock at night every night or 9 o'clock at night and at least getting what I do, need done for the next day. If it's something bigger, if it's something for print, like I'm responsible for the Knife News portion of the print magazine, which is three or four little blurbs, two pages every month, um, and then I'll have individual articles sometimes assigned little less of the of the print writing now that i've got the website going full time but i've got something coming up due next week for the uh it's november issue now i'm still getting used to the publishing schedule (laughs) november's issue press deadline is like the beginning of the second week in october (laughs) but um that's the way it goes i never quite know what month it is anymore
2: yeah so it's it's a little bit of pull it out of the ether. It's a little bit of plan ahead.
1: Yeah. It it depends again on how big the piece is. Um, If it's something that's going to require a couple of interviews or a couple of phone calls or a couple of anything like that, I need to do in little bits and pieces and I'm getting better at budgeting that time. It's, it's definitely different than what I was doing with truth about knives. Um, Much more deadline oriented.
0: You've got a, a physical, uh limit that you have to hit in order
1: for it to go into the magazine. Yeah, and and the thing about the magazine, and Dan will attest to it, the people writing for the magazine are really, really experts in any given niche that they are writing about. And for me to be the expert on any given topic requires a lot of work. I'm a, kind of a jack of all trades. I've got a lot of my background's the bushcraft stuff because of the fishing guide and the Eagle Scout. And for instance, writing this article on the uh, SpeedTech Tech Synergy and the uh we Synergy Two, I mean I had interviews with Jim O. Young, Jim Bruns of Hogue, a couple people at WE, um, Alan Olishowitz was an interview for that one. And it was my first really, really big not human interest, but actually I was the subject matter expert on a knife article. And that was a really cool experience getting to to step up to the plate with that one. Very cool.
0: What are uh, some of the things you look at look for in up and coming makers to kind of feature write about
1: at this point when it comes to writing about makers it's just people that I've gotten to know through a friend or like someone says hey you've got to check this guy out because he's a real he's starting to make some good stuff uh new on the scene sort of thing Dan's introduced me to some people and uh I think you brought somebody around earlier at blade show this year um or someone came and you had recommended them or something but um yeah, it, it's. I know what I like. I don't like a lot of crazy Damascus. Uh, I think it detracts. If you're gonna have Damascus, don't have a real funky handle too. I yeah. think it's ugly. <laughs> um, if you're gonna, if you're, if you're gonna highlight, don't have the blade and the handle competing.
2: Sure.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, one or the other. That I, I mean, if I had to have a style like that. Um, going back to the young makers, as I said, Caleb White. There's a young girl out of California, Nicole Lindstrand. She's 18, um, might be 19 now, but she does a lot of uh, a lot of like uh, frontier reenactment stuff. And so her knives are very kind of revenant style. The guy who made those knives, uh, Michael Mann, out in Idaho, it, it, it does a lot of good period stuff. Um, he's obviously he's older and established, but she's one of the up and comers in that genre. Liam Hoffman, I mean, he's obviously a wonderkind. Um, Everyone knows Liam. Other young makers. I mean, yeah, it, it's it. Everywhere you look. I mean, it, I forget. I think it was Ethan Becker who said that. Even the bad stuff coming out these days, is better than two thirds of what used to be out there. It just it the, the the industry and and the the whole craft has grown so much through ABS through. I mean, everything from traditional avenues like that to, to non-traditional, forged-in-fire type stuff. Um, I know the old-timers hate that show. I think it's been good for the industry. It's put some people on the map, some of whom deserve it, some of whom don't. Some really, really good makers haven't managed to win. Um, it's I think that that's been a, a really good place to learn about some up-and-coming young makers, really. Ben Stark, he's another one. Uh, he had this crazy uh, Iron Man knife go viral about two years ago. Another young kid um, with a very developed personal style. I guess I like seeing something, I guess that's going back to Nicole or Caleb, does a lot of Hamon uh, work. People who've got something that they've kind of latched on to either a technique or an aesthetic or a niche of some sort. And they're really trying to perfect a niche, not trying to do everything. Gotcha.
2: How do you pick, like if you go to pick a, a maker or a subject, what, what's the process for you to – to pick what you're going to write about.
1: I need to have a story. Like that, that, that's been key. Um, One of the things I've been writing for the print magazine are these features on knife retailers. Uh, I did one on Frank's classic knives. I did one on sooner state knives. I'm doing one on PVK coming up in this next issue and hearing the stories and trying to find the story that's going to, relate and be the hook. I remember sooner state uh it was funny his he he told the story of how his daughter uh he mentioned he might want this one knife for uh father's day so his daughter goes down to the basement pulls it off the shelf wraps it and gives it to him. <laughs> um you know like that, that's the kind of thing again you chuckled. Well I try to find those stories and something that's going to kind of make someone well, smile I, or chuckle or well not laugh make it relatable. I
2: laugh for a couple of reasons of yeah you know, what knife do you get a knife maker? Yeah. You know, what knife do you get a knife retailer? Cause they've got access to every knife. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the challenge of being able to find what they really want and get it to them without them buy- buying it or making it. <clears throat> so it, it's just amusing that it, her paying attention. And then this is how he gets the knife.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that I, I again, the, yeah, the personal stories. I mean, I've got a couple with uh, Jeremiah from PVK coming up in this new article. Um, that's the hook for me. I think really is is, is try to make the person and relatable. And you usually, if if you do your homework right and and ask the right questions of your of your subject, you can you can come you can coax those things out. And find the common touch.
0: Yeah. Uh, what What's it like working? the uh, blade show, do you kind of have a whole or have a bunch of pre-show contacts that uh, you kind of schedule to meet with, or how do you, how do you go about uh, taming that uh, craziness when you're trying to get around and talk to everyone that you want to talk to?
1: I don't have too much of a plan going into blade show anymore. I sort of have my routine where I, I walk around for the first 20 minutes or so intentionally not looking for anyone in particular um and i sort of take stock at the end of each night who didn't i cover that i need to make sure that i do um blade show it's it's a lot more you walk on and it's and and you have a chance to meet with most people that you would want to shot show i got to go to my first shot show uh this past january and that you set up ahead of time it's amazing how much scheduling you have to do that that's an entirely different world and was something that was so it was an incredible experience to go to my first shot show this year how much bigger is shot show than uh blade show i know that they have like huge different oh in order of magnitudes
0: all of
2: blade Sh- all of blade show will fit on one of the seven levels of
1: shot show hmm. yeah that yep that's a great way of putting it dan yeah it's it's insane and then depending on the niche of the individual knife company where do they show up on the floor and then some who've been around for longer so you're 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 covering I didn't wear a pedometer and I think I might try next year just because I'm curious how far you walk in a given day there um it is I, I couldn't imagine covering shot show for guns like if I thought blade show for knives was tough Covering SHOT Show for guns has got to be just absolutely impossible.
2: The last time I was at SHOT Show, they had seven linear miles of displays.
1: I believe it. I absolutely believe it.
2: And I was I was there helping out to uh, Interbark Outdoors, and there were five of us every morning that would go out and look for things. And then at lunch, we would reconvene, and the five of us would try to brief him on the 15 things that we saw Just since lunch
1: Oh yeah, absolutely hmm. That's pretty crazy Yeah, you, if, you, if you can find a way To get yourself into shot sometime Kyle, I mean it is It's amazing, like after shot This January, Blade Show this year just did not Intimidate me, although it's cool being On the end of a table
2: If we can get three more listeners for this Podcast, if we can get into shot <laughs> So come on You know <laughs> sign your grandmother we'll up, our your sister come on help Kyle see his first shot show
0: that's
1: in Vegas right um, yes January now that Vegas. you
2: mention it yes yes I believe it is in Vegas and I seem to remember that's known for for great restaurants which is the other thing that we like to check
1: out oh yeah <laughs> hash house a go go you do not leave that place hungry very cool. Yeah,
0: uh, I've never
2: been to Vegas. Oh, 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 you, you dear sweet,
1: sweet, sweet boy. I got married in Vegas the weekend of the Roy Jones Jr. John Ruiz fight. Whoa, whoa, whoa hold on! How did that not make it into the "How did you meet your <laughs> wife" deal? Seriously, uh, because it didn't involve meeting my wife; it involved marrying. Dude, her. you were, i didn't say I got married out in Vegas. Dude, you are so much more Dan than Kyle. i would have to concur yeah we uh when she was backing up when i met her she was uh traveling to detroit for work uh she was with anderson consulting at the time and she'd come in on friday evenings i she'd come home and uh we'd cook dinner watch friday night fights and hang out so we got to be she knows more about boxing than most guys
2: i mean that's that's the triumphant right there
1: something like that good food too um and so we'd get a bottle of wine and make dinner and watch boxing and so when we got married out in vegas got our tickets to the roy jones jr john ruiz fight and we met a bunch of our friends out there saw penn and teller and saw the fight and just had a blast for a weekend it was a lot God, of fun. you
2: are so much cooler right now
1: <laughs>
2: you really should have led that story
1: <laughs> so we'll get back again someday
2: if if somebody wants to talk to you for blade like if there's an up and comer or something new, you know how did how does somebody get your attention? How
1: well we had a knife magazine booth this year, which was uh, which was nice actually. Last year they uh, took Mark's table away, and uh, they were going to give it back this year, but they were going to put us in the Siberia room. And Mark said no, and then uh, we were just going to piggyback off Acti again, but. They then came back and said someone pulled out of their booth, and would we want the booth? So we had a booth this year, which was kind of kind of interesting, uh, being on that side of the table after several shows just circulating. Um, so people, yeah, could come up and find us, register for the website, and we gave away a and Beauchamp saw knife there at the show, and uh, we'll be back. I, I believe we're going to get the table again next year. So... Of the booth again. So that was
2: You certainly deserve it.
1: I don't know what happened with uh Blade deciding they didn't want to give us our table. We'd had the same table for ever, but um that, just, yeah. that was a weird situation. People kept commenting, like, Why were you guys not there? Like, we were there, we they just didn't give us our table. So <laughs> it changed
2: change in ownership.
1: Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. Is what I'm This put year it down they got to. the show going. The show was good this year. Last year's show was a little rough around the edges with that change in ownership, as you said. Um, they did a better job making the Siberia room not so remote this year. And I heard that the booth, the the people's experiences, like from a exhibitor point of view, were much better. The exhibitors really got a raw deal two years ago. Uh,
2: Alicia has done a really phenomenal job. She's the floor. Well, she's a lot of things. But my experience to her with her at first was floor managing the show. And she has done a lot to really streamline things. She's a little bit of the unsung hero on that. And that is me totally kissing up for next year.
1: I've corresponded with her before. Yeah, she's she's good. Ben Sobiak, who is uh who works for Blade magazine, kind of in a not too dissimilar role from mine, is a good guy. And um yeah, they did a much better job this year. The show the show definitely is back to what it was. It
2: was way smoother for me, I can say that. Yeah.
0: I don't know what your opinion is, but I I think that uh, they should kick some of the some of the tables and booths out of the the main room and in the Siberia room should be a lot of those other things that aren't knives. If you're if you're making or selling knives, you should definitely be I think they should try to prioritize and have those people in the main room.
1: I get what you're saying for sure, but then you I mean, there are some exhibitors that have been there for a long time that, even though they don't do knives themselves, it's hard to take a table away. It, I guess, well, except when they took it away from us, it's hard to take a table away from someone who's been coming back for year after year.
2: More importantly, it's hard to take the eight booths away from Going Gear, which they sell knife related <laughs> things, but they paid for eight booths.
0: Yeah, but I mean, like, there was a table that had Scentsy candles and. Different stuff that was in the main room that I I, I don't I I don't get.
2: Yeah, and that's the double edged sword of grandfather because they got in early. And really are you here? With just a soussant of Oh, I just spent four hundred dollars on a knife. I need something for my wife to make her less
1: angry. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Melissa Breed makes great uh mammoth ivory jewelry. Kim Breed's wife. There you go. <laughs> Hey, you know, I used to
2: have—I uh, used to keep earrings in the booth. Okay, maybe I still do. And when a guy's like, "Oh God, I'd, I'd really like to buy the knife, but you know, my wife will kill me." I'm like, oh, hey, tell you what—buy these, buy these earrings for three hundred fifty dollars. I'll give you the knife for free. You can go home, show <laughs> your wife the beautiful earrings that you bought her, and the knife just happened to come along free.
0: Is that—is that some earrings with that uh, firefly handle material on them, or?
2: You know, I'm going to do some of those. They were actually they were kind of cool. It was a local guy to Greenville that took, uh, spent nine uh, millimeter and forty cal brass, and he would mill it down and punch out the primer and set a a gem where the primer would go, and then made them into earrings.
0: Hmm.
2: So it was multiple industries all at once. It was it was
0: synergy. It was beautiful. I'm sure Beth would love those. I think you have to have a oh, she'd have a special woman to wear nine millimeter casing earrings. <laughs> You know,
2: <laughs> it makes a statement, and it wasn't the full casing. I mean, it was just it was turned down just behind the uh, the rib. Okay. Um, so they were, you know, an eighth of an inch thick. But yes, it makes a statement. Yeah. Clay, you've you've done a lot of writing. Has all of it been in the industry, or is there maybe a, a racy children's book out there we should know about?
1: No the uh the, the zoning uh coverage for Jefferson County, Idaho was pretty riveting. Um I, I will say that. Why daddy
2: why daddy can't have a uh, extra building on his property?
1: Uh more like the NIMBY stuff with like confined animal feeding operations and stuff like that. Uh
2: um, that sounds riveting
1: gravel pits next to potato farms, that sort of thing. Uh,
2: That's some Fifty Shades of Grey stuff right there.
1: (laughs) That's Idaho for you. Yes, yes, you are. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. All right. Um, If I could say one more thing about the website real quick. Um, Please do. Okay, well, we have a good balance of free content and uh the the premium um the premium membership uh is 19.95 a year for uh non-print subscribers. Print subscribers get it for 9.95 a year and that gives you access to the entire archives as I said going back to 1975. It gives you access to the Goins Encyclopedia of Cutlery Markings. Mark has the rights to that, and the entire thing is up online. If you're a pocket knife collector and like to look up old tang stamps and be able to date your knives, that's a great resource. There's uh, some other free content. or some uh, We've got lots of free content on the uh, news feed. We have free articles above the fold. That is original knife magazine content plus the premium stuff. We pull individual articles out of the – most recent issue to highlight we try to make something for everybody, whether you're paying for it or not, you're getting a chance. There's, there's a reason to come by. And then if you are someone who wants to take that plunge into premium, um, there's a lot to offer.
2: And you should just as a personal note, if somebody wanted to, if somebody wants to to get into the industry as a writer, like where's the starting point and how do you move forward?
1: It's probably never been a better time to. It, you're not going to get rich doing it. Uh, John Gearock, who is a, a famous fly fishing writer, so someone asked him if he gets paid to fish, and he's like, "The fishing's pretty much on my dime. I get to pay to write about. I get paid to write about it. There's and and no one's paying you a lot, but the uh, it's a hundred thousand uh, dollar, but nine hundred ninety five thousand of it is
2: in personal satisfaction.
1: Yeah, there's if if you want to just get some practice and get a byline out there, it's not hard to write for free knives. Yeah, it's hard to write and make money. Um, There's if you if if you can establish a bit of a small following, it it, it does definitely snowball. Um, Networking definitely helps. Meeting people again, meeting Doug Ritter, and Doug's introducing me to someone, then leads to. Like, like he introduced me to Sal Glesser and I ended up getting an interview with Sal Glesser, founder of Co. Then he introduces you to somebody. And then you just, it, it, the, everybody knows everybody in the industry like him or hate him and uh, a lot more liking than hating. Um, And just, so get out there, write volunteer stuff, submit stuff to blogs, start a blog. I mean, you can, you, anyone can blog and then promote that and people will share your content. If you if you write something, again, my Knife Magazine newsfeed, uh, my email is clay at knifemagazine.com. If you've got a, something that you think is a, a well-written piece, even if from an obscure site, send it to me. And uh, if there's something there, I'll share it. Um, that The whole point of that newsfeed is to promote other people and give people a reason to come to Knife Magazine first as sort of their 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 hub for the online knife community.
2: If you've written something and you think it's pretty solid, is it worth it? to just send it to you or should they try and get it up on you know, their own website or or wherever they can and send you the link?
1: Get it up on their own. We're not taking too much outside content to host it ourselves. Yeah. But we are definitely, if you've got a blogger or if, or if you can get it on somewhere, send the link on to me and we will definitely share it on the news feed if it's a well-written article.
2: So pretty much it comes down to – you know, put it in your own blog, or put it in a, a a free site and send us the link. And if it's got legs, we'll post it, and you can build from there.
1: Or exactly, and then yeah, and then once you have some writing samples that are published, once you get a byline out there, then you can start pitching an individual article to Knife Magazine or to any of our competitors or some of the larger. Blogs out there that do actually pay for some content and, but you're probably not going to just get paid off the bat. You're going to need to have some byline stuff out there on some that you've done for free. You got to pay your bills. Yeah. It's, there are a lot of people who think they can do it and most of them don't last a year. And um, because it is a lot of work and a lot of it isn't terribly thank. It's kind of thankless at times because You're writing something at 10 o'clock at night, and then the next day it's fun to go and look and see who's reacted to it. But you don't always get a lot of feedback. I'm I've been on some medium size, like Truth About Knives. We were getting about oh about three thousand, four thousand page views a day, and that would still only generate three, four, five comments. And that's how you know that people are interacting. It, it, it's when they feel motivated enough to to say something about it.
2: And on a side note, if you read something you like, interact with them. Give them, you know, give them a comment. Give a a little back and forth. Absolutely.
1: And if it's something on, even if it's like a, a piece written about somebody somewhat well known, comment because you never know. Uh, a truth about knives. We had the people from the Alone series. David Anderson um, of knife center was my uh, associate editor there. And he did these series of posts about he'll be on later in the month. David's a
2: great guy. Um, I mean, you're on first. so I want to make sure you, you rub your nose, his nose a little bit, (laughs) but he'll be on later in the month.
1: We've both managed to fall up and it's been great watching him become the face of knife center. And I mean, just couldn't happen to a better guy who, who knows more about knives than I do, or at least at one point did. And I've picked up different things. We probably have different niches now to some degree, but he really knows his stuff and is a heck of a designer too, and getting better every day with a grinder on top of it. So
2: um, yeah. so short of either writing really well and getting that published somewhere free to get your attention, really your best bet is to bribe a, a knife maker who's friends with an editor to, to get your stuff in front of the editor. That's I feel like that's really the most effective. It's,
1: it is definitely net, networking is definitely a key in any industry, but in writing it, it, it in the knife industry and writing for the knife industry is definitely big. So, so
2: feel free to send your prospective articles and a hundred dollars from PayPal
1: to Dan at. So, but yeah, we're always looking for. To, we want to promote people. Um, that's the. I can't come out with enough brand new content every day to make the site interesting. If I try to post that much, it's garbage. So why not go and get good examples of stuff from around the industry and be that launch off point? You know, anyone who's following this podcast is probably a member of a knife group on Facebook. And there are people out there who are posting five, six, seven, eight times a day over the course of 14 hours. Well, give them a reason to come and at least glance at the website two or three times a day, because there's always something new on the newsfeed.
2: So if you're, if you're passionate, go ahead and take a little time, create a blog. When you feel like you've got your writing polished a little bit, forward that along to you and see where it goes.
1: Yeah. I, we we definitely share it and drive some traffic to your site at the very least. And that's the first step. And if you, if you prove that you're a good writer and you know know a niche, find out one thing like one thing well, because on the sites that are going to pay you, they need to you need to be the subject matter expert on whatever that given topic is, because there's going to be somebody who reads it who knows more than you so
2: as you as you're looking for new talent, I suspect you're also kind of getting a feel for what's the knife magazine has been around for years generations decades but the online 1975 wow almost as old as i am um (laughs) but the online presence is new with you so that's a new direction
1: yeah Uh, it was very web 1.0 you could order magazine subscriptions and books but that was it Um, now it's fully interactive updating with fresh content Every day, multiple times a day. So,
2: what direction do you see the website going in? I mean, is it going to be a continuation of the magazine, or is it going to be kind of its own its own entity? And where's that going to go?
1: But really, both. Um, we're going to have continued. Uh, I'm going to be writing more knife reviews. More. One of the things I'm going to am really looking forward to doing more of is going back and picking an uh, a random article from. Nineteen eighty-three, whatever. Like, and then updating it for what's going on now. Like, for instance, there was a great article on Chinese pocket knives from nineteen ninety-four, and what's really funny is you could have crossed out China. Wow, things have changed since then. Oh, absolutely, and you but you could have written, taken that article, crossed out everywhere it said China, written Japan, and published it in nineteen seventy-four, and it would have been the exact same article. And now people are leaving China, and now you can cross out China and make Pakistan. exactly, because people are leaving the Chinese figured out they can make as much or more money making good knives than bad ones yep. if they do it right, because they can the stuff that Kaiser and We and Artisan and the rest of them are coming out with, there are plenty of nationalistic and civic pride reasons to carry only an American knife. But to say that it's because of quality, you've missed the boat because the stuff that is coming out of China now and the high-end stuff, it's every bit as good as a ZT or an Emerson or any of that for $150 cheaper
0: or more.
2: We forced me to take another look at at Chinese-made knives. I mean, I guess it was two or three years ago that they kind of came on my radar, and I had very fixed opinions, but – after seeing Wii, I had to reevaluate, and that I'm not going to lie, that stung a little bit. I mean, I had to admit that maybe I wasn't entirely correct.
1: What's really funny, I, I make a joke, um, and this is a great topic for an article or something. But what were you, what was your gateway knife <laughs> and to different things, and 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 my gateway knife to Chinese knives was CRKT, because unlike a company like Gerber trying to make a knife cheaper by offshoring it. In the case of CRKT, they had a specific design philosophy. They're going to take American designers and try to get a Ken Onion knife into somebody's hand for 50 bucks. Yeah. Well, the only way you can do that is with their business model. And they were doing it differently. It wasn't about, the, about like just cutting costs. It was about bringing something different to the market. And I could get behind that, and I started carrying a couple of CRKT knives, and my grandfather did not climb out of his grave and haunt my dreams, and the world did not stop turning on its axis. And uh, I've enjoyed several. I've got a couple of Kaisers, a couple of Wee's, and uh, I I like them a lot. Um, That said, if I'm wearing a Scout uniform, I will only carry an American knife. It sounds kind of goofy, but there's there's... I get the civic pride thing too, it, it, but at the same time, I can't limit myself when there's good stuff out there. Well,
2: and the balance is everything else being equal, I'll buy American every time, but you start to get into a gray zone of – I'm sorry. I'm tap dancing through a minefield here. Um, <laughs> I, everything being equal, I'll always buy American, but I'm not going to buy – a lesser quality American just because it's American because Hey guys, we got to maintain our standards. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and the American manufacturers are on notice. I mean, they, they can't sit back on their laurels because the market's changing and it, there, people will pay the premium for an American knife. I mean, there, there's plenty of successful American knife companies, but, you have to have a reason to buy them too.
2: And saying American Knife Makers, you're put on notice is the perfect example of you can't just coast on it's American made because other people are starting to make quality now. So now you've got to get out there and improve. You can't just stamp American made and coast on that. You've got to actually deliver a vastly superior product.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Without a doubt. The uh, I mean, I think there's some, there's so many great American and even at, at reasonable prices, Southern Grind would be a good example. Essie, they're they're a great company for uh, uh, not American-made knives at a good price. Top's Top's has like what 500 active SKUs or something ridiculous. Um, they're they make great great stuff at a very reasonable price for many of their knives. There's some that are a little a little goofy, but um, there's usually a reason for that too. Um, Lots of good stuff out there. Obviously, the leg and the legacy companies. I mean, you look at someone like Case; they've gotten into they're they're doing assisted flippers now. They've got their new Shark's Tooth. I mean, this is a great one. Um, Even the legacy companies have really upped their game in the last couple of years. They've they've had to.
0: Yeah, I've been really excited to see Benchmade. uh, One of the that was one of the companies that got me into uh, liking higher end knives, and I've been. There wasn't a whole lot of stuff that they made for the the last five or six, seven years, and but the last year or two, have been a couple couple that wasn't just the Gratilian that they just seem to keep pushing.
1: Yeah, they, it seems like they plateaued a bit after the Crooked River, which was a phenomenal knife, and then they kind of took a couple of years off, and then they kind of realized with their Axis Lock patent running out, they needed to really up their game um the bug out is fantastic mm-hmm. um i really like the uh is it the outlast that double rescue knife mm-hmm. with the that's got the extended axis bar on it that one's a good one um i think it's kind of cool that they've worked with patrick famine on that that goofy little uh uh friction folder cleaver i forget what they call that one but patrick's a great guy french maker um they they've the the they've upped their game again they 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 rested on their laurels for a year or two or three and then they came back strong um with a couple of i say that uh bug out really was a game changer for them
0: yeah that was kind of when i
1: think the, they were kind of turning for me
0: where do you uh think the industry is going as a whole kind of on
1: on that same vein i guess you'd almost have to say what part because the industry is so diverse on the custom side, you're going to see, I think, more with Forged and Fire and and stuff like that. People trying to, it's a it's a very saturated market. People trying to get their name out there. Um, it's been transformative for for many makers. Do you think it's going to go more more the custom route, or do you think it's going gonna... to? Well, I say it, Which which part? I think the I think that's what you're going to see with the custom stuff. Um, you're going to see some more. I mean, you're always going to have the guys that are going to try to do it the traditional way, the ABS way. There's a little more. The the blade sports thing is interesting. I, I'm I'd much rather watch one of Donovan Phillips' uh, YouTube videos of just a blade sports cut than that knife or death show. <laughs> but it's been good for the industry, I think. That man Goldberg just I don't know. I wasn't a WWE fan. He just is just a little too enthusiastic. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't either, but, um, but the show's cool. And anything that gets knives out there in a positive light, I mean, at the same time we talked about at the very beginning of the show with Britain and they're to the point where they're getting rid of points on kitchen knives. And then you look at America.
2: And our five-year-olds are walking around with knives.
1: Yeah. And you've got, we've got multiple TV shows that show knives in a really cool light. Um, The show that I loved and I hope they bring it back is that butcher show. I thought that fascinating. Um, that butcher competition. I I'm a geek, so I probably am like the only one. But um, I really liked that show. I think I must have missed that one. They had about four or five episodes. It was it was interesting. I I I think they picked it up for another season.
2: Uh, which network? History Channel. History. All right, I have to check it out because a buddy of mine up here they've they've got a farm. So the it's a farm that has the restaurant and. Mm-hmm. The class that sells out in hours is their butchery class. I think they do it every 2 months up here now and within the day all of the slots are sell out for the and you know it'll be a side of beef or a pig or whatever but it's it's how to break it down from a quarter to table servings and that one sells out immediately. I believe it. I just think people are some of it is they're becoming more aware of the possibilities, and then in today's world, hey, I can buy I can buy a quarter pig for a very economical number. Break it down and freeze it, and you know, I'll get a much higher quality of meat for a fraction of the price.
1: Can't complain about that. Going to answer Kyle's question about the other half of the industry, the production side. We talked about it with the Chinese knives, and uh, people are moving to Pakistan. Um, People are moving to Vietnam. People are moving. Uh, Taiwan still growing. But the Chinese have gotten so good that the cheap knives have to be made somewhere else because they're busy making expensive ones. I think Buck and Bear out of Pakistan are they is ideally suited. Yeah, they're Pakistani. Wow. But what they've got going that other Pakistani companies don't have is Atif is in the States, and he's got a brother over in uh, Pakistan that, that handles the manufacturing side of it. And so they can control the quality from start to finish, which you don't get with this Mascus and these other, they, they realize they've got to do things different and better, but I think they're ideally positioned to be the pioneering, like the Kaiser of Pakistan, for lack of a better way to put it.
2: Because they do a really solid ring lock, don't they?
1: They do a good ring lock. Um, they've got a couple of new designs. They've, they, they just moved their folders in-house. They used to OEM them to China. But they've they've upped their game and their manufacturing to the point where they can now produce folders in house, which, if you understand production knives, is a big step for them.
2: Oh yeah, that and I'm surprised. I've got one of their barrel lock or uh, ring locks, and mm-hmm. that's a,
1: a. It pains me to say, but that's a nice, tight, little, clean knife. Yeah, and they're good guys. I, I, Atif is a, a super nice guy. He, he's really figured out that there is a niche for him and they've done a good job of outreach. I mean, they've developed a social media following and I think that if they continue what they've been doing, right, they're going to be a player. Yeah.
2: I mean, I, I could see a comparison to early Wii.
1: Yeah. It's all about maintaining the quality. They they don't have a large margin of screw up, but if they can avoid that, they're in good shape. I, I think that they're, People know of them and that is such a leg up on the random person which I know Kyle and uh Dan and anyone in the knife industry who has an email out there. <laughs> Hi, my name is Ali Akmar whatever yeah, I, I, I am maker of Damascus knives in Waziristan. Like please let please import my knives. Like <laughs> you get how many of those a day? Yeah. And it, it to the point where it's a running joke, but they've managed to make Pakistani knives not be a joke, and that is an accomplishment in and of itself.
2: Yeah, it, it, I was not aware, and that, that shifts my perspective a little bit. Where do you think the industry's going as a whole? What do you think the, the next big thing is going to be?
1: Oh, I don't know. We've kind of we're, – we're coming – There's only so much more that we're going to get out of Super Steels, I think. I I think that we're fast reaching the point of diminishing returns. I think there's some point point of diminishing returns.
2: I've said I've got to agree that some of the Super Steels have started to exceed anything you're ever going to need. Short of really extreme circumstances or really specific jobs, for everyday use, the Super Steels, and God knows I've drank the Kool-Aid. I love them, but they have started to exceed any necessary use.
1: Well, how many belts are you going th- through for that next deal versus how much more can you charge for it and why?
2: Uh, the upcharge that I have for like S35VN, my upcharge only covers the co- the hard cost of belts. It does not cover the actual extra time that it takes to grind it. Mm-hmm. So you're actually getting by hours, you're getting a much better deal for S 35 V N than you are for O1. for me. I believe it. And I, I mean, O one, I can make five knives with one. I use a Norton blaze belts and I can make five O one blades with one belt. I can make one S 35 V N knife and it takes one and a half belts. <laughs>
1: that makes sense. Yeah, and and once you get into that like and then your end user can't sharpen it themselves. Uh, diamond stones have gotten
2: cheap enough that it's not a huge investment to get diamond stones. But like a charcuterie I work with loves S35VN cuz he can break down an entire pig without having to sharpen the knife. But truthfully, a lot of the end users just don't need that level of performance.
0: But also a lot of end users don't know how to use a diamond stone they're trying to they're trying to put it through a like a kin onion work sharp or uh
2: well there's that because i started to say it's just like sharpening on a an oil stone or a whetstone how do you not use that but no that's that's a good point i occasionally have to to change my perspective because you know, when i was about five years old i got sat down with the the old oil stone that stayed in the cabinet and you know it was coarse on one side, fine on the other, and then there was an Arkansas stone. You want to sharpen a knife, and that was the only option I had and Until I could sharpen a knife on the oil stone, there was no chance I would ever be allowed to have one so when I sharpen on a diamond stone that's just that's the way I grew up sharpening, but I forget that I had a very unusual upbringing yep in so so many ways you're
0: just unusual. I never <laughs> sharpened on a stone. We pretty much didn't sharpen most of our knives <laughs> when I was growing up very well. Yeah, we were
2: – there was a drawer in the, the cupboard in the, the dining room that it was an oil stone with two grits, an Arkansas stone, and a little – and it was the old-school oil can that went to tuk <laughs> um that had three-in-one oil in it, and that was the whole
1: – Making me think of my great uncle.
2: That was the whole setup.
0: I think we dropped them off at a a shop in the the town, and then picked them back up, as everybody should. And uh, the <laughs> name of that
2: shop is Dog, <laughs> Dog Knife. <laughs> Support your local sharpener.
0: Yeah.
2: So, so Clay, if if somebody has a rock solid idea, or they've come up with the the rare golden egg of a new concept in the knife world, is there a way they can get a hold of you? should get a hold of
1: you uh, <laughs> clay at knife Um I'll be happy to talk things out. And if they need to be put in contact with somebody, if there's something that there's some, there there, I can certainly uh, uh, <laughs> certainly put them in front of somebody who uh, might further what it is they're looking to do. So
2: it better be a solid journalistic idea. Or are you going to be mocked around? Oh,
1: I realize that there, if I'm going to be representing knife magazine with something that there's Something I need to uh, take into account is how it reflects. That was what was great about Truth About Knives in the sense that I I had my own little fiefdom and no one really cared. But um, I have a little less autonomy, but I have access to so much knowledge and so many cool, cool knives and so much research potential. And it's uh, writing for Knife Magazine. I realized that I don't get to screw up because there's a lot that has gone before me that I've got a standard that I have to uphold. So there's some re I mean, Bruce Boyles and Bernard Levine and all these writers that we have on staff and are, as editors and stuff. These guys have been doing it a long time and know an awful lot. I need to be careful not to to reflect poorly. If I, if I, if I, if I just am blatantly wrong on something, that's not good.
2: <laughs> one of the, uh, one of the old school writers had come by the booth a year before and it's like, Hey, you know, feel free to use my name, but you, you should so mark your knives. And the first time he said that, I'm like, Oh, hell no. And he came around the next year. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, this is year two. I don't want to offend anybody. So I went by and I have never been so er- nervous to hand a man. My knife as I did with him because I know the quality that he has judged that he is he has dealt with. And you know, I I felt like the little kid in short pants trying to hand the king a knife. (laughs) So, if you're going to come at that level, you best bring your
1: A game. Yeah, he's he's seen some good ones, and he's seen a whole lot of bad ones. Yeah, he he knows, and it's funny because he's not. I mean, he's he's a good cook, and 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 the culinary stuff he uses, but he's not like a big like bushcraft guy or or outdoorsman or really even a huge knife user. But he just has a passion for what they are and especially the old ones with history and provenance. And in
2: my case, he communicated really well with me. Hey,
1: Mm -hmm.
2: here's some things you did well. Here's some things you need to improve on. It wasn't just that he found information, but he communicated it well. And that's, that's hard to, well,
1: 30 years of writing will help you communicate. (laughs) Yeah. Funny thing. Yeah. (laughs) Words are his business, but yeah, he, it's, it's been it's been awesome. Whether it's the as I said a Michael Price on my desk or a Fairburn to open letters, but uh, God,
2: that speaks to me on so many different levels.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's just some cool, and, and then there's some just odd stuff that doesn't make a lot of sense. There was a, a Philippine uh, bolo that was in the office. That I mean, it, it was touristy. It was sold to a serviceman after World War II, but you wonder what the stories are behind that. Was it sold to some sailor on the eve? Was it traded to some GI that was stationed at a post for a pack of smokes? You just – you hold the history in your hand and that – there's just no substitute for that. I hadn't even
2: thought about that. That's an amazing point because especially as far as some of the GIs traveled and what they were exposed to, even some of the knockoff knives have probably got a really amazing story.
1: Oh, yeah, and these things were, I mean, they weren't knockoff in the sense that they, these uh, uh, Negrito Bolo is what it's called, and they were made out of, like, Jeep leaf springs or wrecked vehicles. It was just salvaged metal, yeah. and they engraved them Philippines, Manila, 1945 or whatever. It sold them to GIs, and they brought them home as as souvenirs, and uh, the stories these things can tell.
2: <laughs> My buddy down in Colombia talks about that whenever a truck wrecks, I mean, if you are not right there on top of it, the first thing that happens is they strip all the leaf springs out of the suspension.
1: Yep. That's great steel. My favorite, uh, there's a, uh, it's a satellite institution of the Smithsonian called the Museum of Appalachia. And it's just about 20 minutes north on 75 from Knoxville. And my favorite exhibit in the entire place is all tools that were made into other tools. Because... (laughs) They didn't waste anything. Oh, no. I mean, they'll be like, if it was metal, there just wasn't raw material coming in. They salvaged everything. And you'll have like something that was a scythe at one point, and it's now a collection of punches and stuff. I mean, whatever. And it's just so cool. Stuff that got turned into other stuff.
2: Well, in kitchen knives, a specifically made kitchen knife is actually relatively new in the industry. It used to be all kitchen knives were chefs' knives, and about the time you had worn your chef's knife down to the shape of a boning knife, it was time to buy a new chef's knife. And your old boning knife had been worn down to the size of a five-inch knife, and your old five-inch knife had been worn down to the size of a paring knife. Mm -hmm. And it was just a a revolving—you know—you didn't buy a paring knife. Your paring knife was your old boning knife that. You had sharpened and worn down in size.
1: Yep. Oh yeah. Some of those like old Will and Fink uh, skinners and stuff, like those those old classic nineteenth century butcher knives. I mean, those were as generalized as they come. Yeah.
2: Hell, a, a patch knife was typically a, either a broken or worn down straight razor that someone put a handle on.
1: Makes sense. All of those little specialty knives were made out of something else. That's what's that that is that's fun. That's cool.
2: You know, I, I feel a whole new episode coming on, knives that used to be other kind of knives.
1: <laughs> you need some visual. It yeah. actually reminds me of you were talking about what Knife Magazine's website was going to do. One of the things that we can do where we do tie it in to the print magazine is we can have, like, for instance, an article on Scrimshaw, and then we can do a little video clip of a Scrimshander at work, <laughs> which I think is the coolest word, by the way, Scrimshander. I had never heard that word until I started working at Knife Magazine.
2: That is an awesome word. That is almost actually that might be better than chatoyance.
1: <laughs> so, but it, so we can take something, we can write about a technique and then illustrate the technique. One of the things we've, we we keep joking about doing, and we're not the first people to do this. I know there are videos on YouTube already, but talking about Damascus steel, we're going to make some Damascus steel out of Play-Doh where we're going to do different patterns of two different, two ah. different Play-Dohs and fold them and cut them and, and show how here's how you get a fishbone pattern. Here's how you get ladder. Here's how you get whatever, and just folding Play-Doh. That's a cool idea. Not our, not original to us, but I think we can do a good job of it. Yeah. Maybe you can sell it to I, Pakistan. <laughs> Pakistani Play-Doh. Pakistani play master. Hello, I have a great deal for you. Try to do
0: friends Just Just wait till it dries; it'll be fine.
1: (laughs) How do you treat treat? He treat (laughs) Plato. Just put it in the oven at four hundred for a while. (laughs) Like a shrinky dink.
2: (laughs) All right. Now that we've offended every knife making culture, (laughs) um, so knife magazine. When everybody realizes that they need a subscription to Knife Magazine, how can they go about doing that?
1: KnifeMagazine.com. We have uh if it's something premium, there're plenty of places. We have uh, big banners for become a premium online member. And if you don't want to become a premium online online member as well, we've got lots of free content. So, um there are lots of uh scanned books that are off their uh copyright, some really like cool old books about knives from the 1920s and 30s and 40s there's as i said the news feed there's updated stuff from our archives that will be on the public side there's contests i mean primarily we've already given away 100 knives and we've only up since june so yeah that's for everybody do y'all have any other giveaways coming up we do. We're going to start doing a uh, every month or two a uh, custom knife that we'll write about in the magazine. Uh, Dan actually has one that is going to be one of the first ones we do. Um, was that a buckeye or maple oh. handled That was really beautiful knife. Um, we've got sitting around in the office now. Thank, you. thank you. Uh,
2: uh, sorry, I didn't know I was setting myself up. Um, yeah, the,
1: uh... <laughs> it's going to go to a reader. No,
2: that's thank you. That. that houndstooth pattern
1: yeah that was it
2: yeah um that is that is a knife that i really enjoyed making
1: well it's going to look good in print and we'll give that away to a reader i know coming up we have an article on Les george he's going to be on our cover this coming month and uh we'll be giving away a less george dagger um one of his mid text that's that's coming up in a a, that's gonna be if and actually speaking of subscription, so anyone who wants to register, we're going to announce this, and I'm going to let the cat out of the bag. It might actually be out of the bag by the time this goes live, anyways. So, anyone who wants to register with the website gets an entry. If you become a premium online member, you get a second entry, and if you're a print subscriber and an online member, you get a third entry. So you get three cracks at uh, winning this Les George tech dagger, um, which will be given away in conjunction with. Uh, his being on the cover of the November issue, I believe. So is that uh, only for new members? No, you have to register, uh, but you can register for free as a free member um, on the website. That'll get you your first entry. And then you can get more if you uh, go on from there. Or uh, if you're just a print subscriber, you do have to register to get any of your entries. You won't automatically be entered, but otherwise... Okay. Uh, that's what I was wondering really about. That's the restriction. Yeah. Yeah, you you do have to register for the contest, but suddenly your registration becomes three entries if you're an online subscriber and a print subscriber, for instance. Okay. Cool. You guys should definitely check that out. Yeah, knife magazine.com. That's
2: <laughs> www.knifemagazine.com. Knife Magazine for all the finest in knife publications.
1: Yes. Or as far as social media goes, we are uh the knife mag at uh on Facebook and on Instagram and on Twitter we are Knife Magazine. The Knife Mag was the uh, is again on Twitter and all right on uh, Instagram and Facebook. But yeah, come check us out, drop us a note, say hello. Tell us that you heard us on I heard about us on Knife Perspective Podcast and uh say hi.
2: I think if they tell you that they heard about you on Knife Podcast and or subscribe, they should get a, a, a an extra spot on the, um, the drawing.
1: We'll figure something out. We'll uh, definitely when, uh, when, when this gets posted, we'll, we'll, we'll do something. We we'll, might we'll, we'll give away some t-shirts or something. Oh, sweet.
2: Was just kind of angling, but wow, you're going <laughs> to actually make this happen. I oh, think, got a pretty
1: incredible swag pile in the office. <laughs>
2: I think that every time somebody mentions you, Dan or Kyle should get a hundred dollars.
1: Actually, it's real funny with working for knife versus uh <laughs> so if you're writing for a blog, it's not that hard to get free knives to test. Um if you if you've been doing it for a little while. But coming to work for Knife magazine when we did this 100 knives in 100 days thing, this giveaway, it's one thing to give a giveaway a knife that's going to get reviewed. It's another giveaway a knife purely as promotion and that's something I never had the 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 juice to pull off before, but at Knife Magazine, we got literally 100 knives, everything from customs to production, like a, a production Kershaw or, or Browning on one end to the Gant and Beauchamp, uh, David Kurt. And I mean, it, it's we, we gave away some really tremendous knives. There's a Kim Breed in there we did.
2: I know a couple of makers that were legitimately glad just to help out. I mean, after almost 45 years in the industry with all y'all have done to support and promote makers, I know a lot of makers that were actually very happy to just give you a knife.
1: Yeah, I, you're right. Absolutely. It was It was neat. I, it, it, the support was overwhelming. Um, Condor gave us a dozen of the Kephart knives to give away. Um, Browning gave us nine knives. Kershaw was like a half dozen between Kershaw and there was a ZT in there as well. Tops gave us a couple. That says a lot about you. Yeah, it was it, it was phenomenal. I mean, Steel Will. Uh, I mean, I'm gonna, I'm gonna forget somebody. That's what I hate because we gave away so many of them. Um, yeah, no, us- you're not
2: expected to to mention all 100. <laughs> <laughs> it,
1: it was just it just tremendous though. From from all around, Hogue was another good. One. I I love Hogue. Um, those guys are great. Um, I'm a good friend of Allen, and they just do it right. Jim Bruns is one of the most class guys in the industry. Neil's a good guy. Scott Brun's their whole crew. I mean, it's a family. It's still a family company, which is really cool to see.
2: That's getting rare. Yeah,
1: especially in in this industry, as things are getting bigger and yep. bigger, they've managed to do it while still being a family company.
2: All right, Kyle has just given me the uh, the notice that at this point, it's going to take him two days to edit it, and one of us is going <laughs> to look bad if we don't wrap it up soon.
1: Oh, it's all good. I appreciate, I appreciate the opportunity, guys. This has been fun and it's just been fun to shoot the bull with, uh, with Dan again. One of my favorite people, uh, for years since David Anderson introduced us, in fact. And, uh, I'm lucky enough to be part of Dan's little, uh, annual blade, uh, blade show, uh, dinner party. And, and Kyle, um,
2: and Kyle, uh, Kyle is the newest member. You'll be able to see Kyle next year at the, uh, sweet, the, the super secret, uh, Dogwood uh, Saturday Night Dinner.
0: That's some breaking news right there. I didn't even know about that.
2: Yeah, well, I was going to (laughs) surprise you. Once I realized how much power and control you had as editor, I felt like it would be rude for me not to invite you. (laughs) And then I realized
1: that I actually enjoy your company. So nice. Looks like I just cost Dan another shot of Jefferson's Ocean.
2: Great, Kyle didn't even know that. <laughs> Thanks, man.
0: You're back on the Maker's Mark now. <laughs> I, I, I like Maker's
1: Mark too, so that, that that works for me. Oh, you can't you can't drink Maker's Mark at dinner on Saturday night. Oh yeah, we'll introduce you. That's the pit on Friday. So
2: the place we go has, I think they have 132 different bourbons. Uh, well, behind the bar. So we will we will introduce you to some some new habits. Gotcha. Um.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was making I was making the rounds with my uh my cooler in the pit with uh all the beer and stuff, so
1: you handed out quite a few beers with that. I still have not been to the pit. I've been to blade shows all the way back to twenty fourteen and I've never hung out in the pit. That's because you have this you have deadlines.
2: The rest of us don't have to worry
1: about. Yes, yes, I
0: do. Yeah, you need to come like Thursday night before everybody starts or something.
1: That might be an option because I'll be there again this year. So on Thursday, hey,
0: are you are you going to go to a uh, Blade
2: Show West this year?
1: No, we have uh, one of our writers uh, is going to be there. One of our uh, staff writers, I can't remember who it is right now. I think it might be Stephen Garber but, or Garger, but I'm not positive. We'll have somebody there for sure. Uh, Mark was out at USN a couple weeks ago. And I think it's actually I think Blade Show West is like the same weekend as uh one of Bruce Boyle's shows in Pigeon Forge or something i there there's something oh. he 's got to go he 's got to go to something local that he can 't make it to Blade show West
2: uh, Uncle Lee and I are going to be there, so if uh I, if i can 't see you, then maybe i 'll see one of your people now that you have people.
1: Uncle Lee was back in Knoxville for a couple of days uh last week and got to have lunch with him and that God, we won't even go there because that's that would be an entire podcast in and of itself is just telling Ethan stories. But um, just so once I realized that- the friendship that's one of my most treasured friendships I've made in the industry without a doubt is Ethan Becker. He is he is
2: absolutely one of the best human beings I've known. I mean, apart from
1: industry, and the dosecki's guy has nothing on him. No. Oh, good God, no. The Dos Equis guy has nothing on Ethan Becker. He is the most interesting man in the world. Did you hear about it? <laughs> Have you heard about it? the record label he had? No, I missed that one. <laughs> yeah.
2: No, back before cookbooks and everything else, he, he owned a record label that, I mean, bands that I had heard of. I mean, <laughs> it's like, wow, I like missed an entire chapter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: You need to get him to write a book.
2: So, um, as a little spoiler, definitely, um, he is strictly iPad nowadays. He doesn't use his laptop anymore. So, we have figured out the easiest way to do an interview with him is he and I are going to drive out to, to Blade Show West together. So, I'm going to finally break down and buy one of the f- mm. multi directional microphones that Kyle's been on me about because apparently there's audio quality. Um, so I'm gonna get a, uh, I'll get a microphone and one of the nights uh, during the trip out to Blade Show West, uh, Uncle Lee and I will, will call in to Kyle and we're gonna have the, the Ethan Becker
0: night. The, that should be a nice long one. Oh, yeah, you, you. I suggest Middle of the Nevada desert. <laughs>
2: I suggest you have a Gatorade bottle handy.
0: Yeah. <laughs> or Todd, Todd's uh, bucket.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, you empty it the a beer and then you fill
1: it up.
0: <laughs> All righty. All
1: right. Well, I appreciate this, guys. Yeah. I really oh, do. I it was
0: great to hearing a bunch of your perspective on a lot of the stuff in the industry and how you got uh, to where you are.
1: Well, I've loved the podcast. I mean, we've I've enjoyed sharing it. I've enjoyed watching you guys get your stride as you've, you've gotten a few of these things under your belt. And loved listening to Stephen Fowler. Um just the whole thing you guys, you guys do a good job, so thank you
2: thank you very much awesome we, uh, thanks so uh, just to wrap up um, complaints those will go to Kyle at KnifePerspective.com. dot com you know all of your hate mail, your things you we did wrong uh when we insulted you or hurt your feelings. Kyle needs to hear about all that um <laughs> Any questions about cool stuff you want to know about or if you want to tell us how amazing we are, um, that'll go to Dan at dot If you're interested in knife magazine, that's gonna be knifemagazine.com. Go ahead and get the, the full subscription so you get the the archives.
1: If you just want to see what one of the article one of the issues looks like, we have that uh February twenty nineteen, which is the Keppart article, uh that is the cover there's lots more in it besides, but uh you'll see dan's kephart uh original um in that as well, so check it out that's on the sidebar on the right you can get you can see the whole issue as a flip book and see what it is that you get in print that's very cool yeah yeah that that issue in particular is 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 pretty phenomenal.
0: Well, you can uh, get in touch with with us at the podcast, KnifePerspective.com, for all the the new episodes and show notes and stuff. And on Facebook and Instagram at Knife Perspective. You can find the podcast on uh, all sorts of uh, the sites, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio. And uh, if there's any that we need to be on that you want us to uh, know about, shoot us a a message. We'll try to get it on there. Or embedded on the Knife Magazine Neverending News Feed. There you go. Yeah, there's that too, and uh, yeah, if you can leave a wherever you listen to, if you can leave a review, that uh, will help us get found by other people. That's uh, always helpful. It doesn't have to be positive. You can complain about what you, what stand is. Just
2: be sure to leave it in the comments.
0: <laughs> yeah, and you can get in touch with me at uh, knives dot com and cage uh, daily knives on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And my email address is both Kyle at KH Daily Knives and dot com respectively. Dan, yeah, you can get in touch with Dan at Dogwood Custom Knives.com, and he's on Facebook and Instagram also, Dogwood Custom Knives. And uh, he said his email address is Dan at Dogwood Custom Knives.com. And I'd like to thank our sponsor one last time, Jess Hoffman of J. Hoffman Knives and J. Hoffman Hardwoods. Definitely check him out. I uh, guess some awesome stabilized material, and he makes some some pretty beautiful knives also. You got anything else, Dan? So take good night, Kyle. <laughs> good night, Kyle. There we go. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everybody. Well, let's take it to the edge. Because that's what's expected in this discussion. This is the night prospective. Let's get to the point talk about that's what's expected. make the
1: pledge, take it to the, edge. the yeah. Paul Newman, uh, you know, when you're buying the salad dressing and the spaghetti sauce, the educational charity is Kenyan's endowment. Oh, so I didn't know that. Yeah, he got kicked off the football team for getting in a really? bar fight, and that's when he focused. That's when he focused on acting full time.
2: God, I, you know, I respect him a little bit more right now. <laughs> I mean, that whole motorcycle sc- scene from The Great Escape kind of put him on the radar for me.
1: But that knowing was, uh, that he's dude. <laughs> Yeah, totally knew that. (laughs) It's the sting that did it for me personally, or Sundance. Oh, yeah,
2: yeah, that's the one I meant. The sting. (laughs) (laughs) That was McQueen, man. (laughs) Thank God he's dead, so he can't show up and whip. Oh, my. You know, don't even try to edit that. Don't! It's in there. There's no way to get it.
1: <laughs> I'm just like, do I let Dan make a fool of himself or not? <laughs> Might as yeah, well. Yeah, it's all good, Dan. I'm I'm fine with you looking like an idiot.
0: <laughs> <laughs> hey,
2: I got broad shoulders. Throwback
0: sound clip last week. All right, so... Uh...
2: Yeah, we've 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 covered your inspiration for <laughs> writing. Yeah, that was that was awesome. Thanks. Um <laughs>